This week, Three Sides of the Coin, we find out what it's like to write with Gene Simmons for Revenge and Carnival of Souls. Jesus. We got a little bit of Psycho Circus trivia as well that we learn about. This is fascinating, fascinating interview with our guest this week. This is Three Sides of the Coin, talking all things KISS. I want to rock and roll all night. You're listening to Three Sides of the Coin. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Three Sides of the Coin. You got the two who founded this. The two that matter. Nearly 10 years. I don't know. I, You know, Mark matters. But let's be honest, you're a founder. So then I have, uh, what do they call that? Um, tenure. Thank you. I've got tenure. <laughs> yeah, you can't be fired. Yeah. <laughs> we can take yeah. away you. We can take away your responsibilities, but you can't be fired. Well, and I had nothing else to do today. And you'll still you'll still earn the same share of the check that Gene sends us every yep. month, which, which is, is really nice. Which is nothing. Nothing. Your share of nothing is still nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you've got Mike and you've got Tommy. You know, we're in. It hasn't been ten years, but this year, it this December, it'll be ten years since we founded this train wreck. And if I'm not mistaken, this yeah, last week was episode 465. So we will hit 500 this year. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. 500 weeks talking about Kiss. Wow. I don't fucking know how we found Someone that much. Therapy. Oh, I'll say that. Doesn't <laughs> I? <laughs> I don't take ourselves seriously. I think some of our listeners think we do, but oh, yeah. they sure as hell don't. I mean, come on. We've, we've talked about one band for 500 nearly. At some point this year, we'll have talked about one band for 500 weeks. Yeah. That's therapy needing to happen. Yeah, that's not something I'd put on a resume. <laughs> it is on uh, my but, LinkedIn. And I wanted, yeah, I want to do a quick shout out uh, to Chris Burns. He has, he's a big listener of ours. I've known him forever. He's a friend. Um, he just launched a new podcast called Dysfunction Junction. You can find it on YouTube. I'm a guest this week and we all, him and his co-hosts, we, we build our ultimate bands. So, I was going to say, I was wondering if his podcast was anything related to Conjunction Junction. No, it's not. <laughs> but Dysfunction Junction, I thought it was a great name. Uh, he's a very nice guy. Please get out there and check him out, support him. I'm sure he's on other platforms. I just know you can find it on YouTube. So next week's show, I'll be on. So please check it out. See who I pick for my ultimate rock band. And and I'm assuming, even though you were here last week, you don't have any comments to share. Oh, I've got comments. Oh, God. Share yeah. them. Yeah, I do. Actually, um, people are loving the... Uh, oh, the Larry Mazur interview is is a home run, people. Yeah, uh, Spiritual Hammer says, this is an important interview. Thanks again for the informative, entertaining watch. This is what keeps Kiss alive for me. So thank you very much. And um, A. Steinman, once again, another excellent show, guys and gals. How cool, Mike. I did not know you were at the Muskegon Hits show. That was my very first concert ever. I think I was 14 years old at the time. Got to meet Eric and Bruce after the show. That's very cool. You know, a little, little, little tidbit that Muskegon Hot in the Shade show. So one of our other listeners, who's everybody on the show knows, and a lot of listeners know, Adrian Poole from England, 
he goes on the kiss cruise a lot yeah he was, he's he was my kiss pen pal back in the early 80s we started pen pal and what that means for those of you who have no idea before the internet you'd find a pen pal of the same interest in the back of a magazine or something like that and you'd write each other about the same thing he was in europe i was in in the u.s he'd send me kiss stuff from europe i'd send him kiss stuff from america and you know, we've we've been friends ever since then well he came to the u.s for that hot in the shade tour and we drove to muskegon michigan so he could see kiss on the hot in the shade tour that's very cool and and like i said it was it was a very small hockey arena yep i think it was all general admission i don't know maybe four or five thousand people max mm -hmm. it was uh little caesar which i love the fact that i got to see little caesar um but yeah i mean that's that's what kiss has always been about it's like the people you get to know who remain in your life forever Oh, totally. And the, the pen pal thing, I know you were very big on that. You had several that you that you uh, kept in contact. Yeah, with. I had I had one that I wrote to in Utah. And then I had somebody, I think, in Australia for a little while. And the guy in Australia, I believe, and Adrian can correct me if I'm wrong. I think the guy in Australia introduced Adrian and I and you know, we were just all through the 80s and everything. I mean, he was sending me the European tour T-shirts, and I was buying him the U.S. tour T-shirts, and he'd send me the European tour books. I'd send him the U.S. tour books. You know, keep in mind, people, before KISS conventions, before eBay, this is how you got stuff. He'd send yeah. me flyers and ads from there. You know, he'd go to um, the Donington festivals every year. Mm -hmm. He'd take photos of the festivals and send me audio recordings of them and That's you know awesome. I'd, I'd introduce them to band I, I, I introduced him to rat when rat first came out I mean that's what that's how it all happened back in back in the good old days yep Adrian's a good dude he really is yep Yep. Um, Anthony X, I wish this interview was 10 hours long. Great guest. For me personally, I'm not a fan of the Revenge era. I don't think the album aged well. And honestly, I thought the band looked a little ridiculous going through their metal phase. They looked cool, but it just wasn't Kiss to me. The stage was too dark and the album was overrated to me. I feel like if I heard the Revenge album for the rest of my life, if I never heard the Revenge album again for the rest of my life, I'd be okay. So there you go. There's someone who didn't care for that era. Well, we know you think Revenge is also overrated, don't you, Tommy? No, I love Revenge. I thought Revenge was one of the albums you... No, I put it in my top five. I okay. just don't like the whole thing. There's a few songs on there that I'm not a big fan of. Okay. But five or six that I love, I love on that record. You know? Um, yeah, so there you go. That's some comments for you. Yeah, I mean, if, if you haven't listened to our Larry Mazur interview... By all means, check it out. There's so much deep dive minutiae. I mean, somebody also commented, this is one of those episodes they got to listen to a second time because there's just so much stuff in casual conversation that you got to go back and go, wow, what? what did he just say? What was that about? And, you know, and again, take it all with a grain of salt. Even though Larry was the manager, you know, he was there seeing things differently than we might see him. You yeah, know? it's a whole different perspective. 
whole different perspective, which is what you want. You know, he's not the end all be all answer, but he adds a lot to what's being said by other people to either corroborate or or question what somebody else is saying. That's, you know, what all these episodes are about. You got to take all 466 episodes and you piece them all together and that builds the story of Kiss. Right. I agree with that. Um, so before we get to this week's guest, I think there's a couple things Kiss related we should mention real quickly. Um, the new Off the Soundboard album is now available on Amazon. So okay. if you want to get that, go order it from Amazon. I did. Don't order from Kiss Online people. You can go get that. I think the green vinyl is exclusive to Kiss Online, but if you're not interested in that, just go get the black vinyl. You can get that on Amazon. And unfortunately, as we were kind of predicting over the last few episodes, just, was it today or yesterday, KISS announced they are postponing, pushing back their European tour to August and September of this year. So uh, European and... Oh, no, oh, no, excuse me, back up. Australia. Not European. Australia. No word on, on European tour. The Australian tour is being pushed back to August and September of this year. Right. And basically it seems like the reason is the Western Australia government is not relaxing their COVID restrictions where the rest of Australia has. Like just this week, I think Australia for the first time in two years has opened the country up to foreigners. If you're a foreigner and you are vaccinated, you can now fly to Australia. Which is interesting considering what a big deal it was for the tennis pro just a week or two ago. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that was a really big deal. And they ended up kicking him out of the country and he could not compete for the Australian Open. Well, he wasn't vaccinated. So, no, no, I understand that. Right. So, so the, like... the, yeah. So, the, what all of Australia, and, and, and again, I don't, I'm not in Australia, so I don't follow this yeah. daily. But from what I understand, all of Australia except for Western Australia. And, and Western Australia would be like Perth. And because they want to play Perth, they have to move the whole tour so they can hopefully wait for Perth to open up. It sounds like if they wanted to just cancel the Perth show and not play there, they could have gone ahead and done this. Right. But they wanted to play Perth because Perth is, is important to Kiss. So anyway, sadly... Um, the Australian tours pushed back to August, September. Um, no word on Europe. Uh, I'm not, again, I'm not holding out a lot of hope. Aerosmith just postponed their, their European tours. So it's, it's pretty iffy in Europe right now. But I think they're probably waiting a few more weeks before they have to commit to anything. I mean, Australia, the tour was going to start next month. So they had to they had to make an announcement at some point. Either it was a go or no go. Anyway, so sorry for everybody in Australia, but hopefully, what is this, the third time? Third time the Australian tour has been pushed back? Is it the third? 
Could the be. First, the first the first time Paul got oh, sick. Yeah. And then then I think two times because of COVID. I don't know. I'm losing count, but hopefully no, it'll nice. finally happen. Um, hopefully things work out in Europe. But again, as I've I've said, I would not right now be going out and buying airfare and hotel for shows. Well, yeah, look that... at what happened with, well, even uh, with Adele, and that wasn't a COVID thing, but she canceled the whole freaking thing at like 24 hours before her performance. In her Los residency Vegas. started, yeah. Yeah, and boy, I guess there were a lot of really pissed off people that were flying in from other countries. Yeah, I mean, again, keep in mind, if a concert ultimately is canceled, you'll get your money refunded. Right. But what happens to your airfare and hotel and rental cars and all that other stuff, that's not the band's, sadly, the yep. reality is that's not the band's problem. They don't, that, that, that's your problem. The band's responsible for getting you a ticket refund. But it's worth mentioning that if you're going to decide to travel somewhere, have a backup plan. Yes. To either do something different or be ready to try to get a different flight for another time and go on credit. But, you know, shit happens. I mean, yeah. I, we flew down to, was it West Palm Beach, and it got canceled for uh, rain that night. Yep, yep, stuff happens. So um, I think that's, that's sort of it for KISS-related news, unless I'm missing anything. I don't think there's anything happening in the Ace Frehley world. Well, he's going to right do now. shows here this spring, and Flip is going to be the opening act. Really? Um, Good. Yeah, I'm going to road manage for Flip for three of the dates. Um, they're working it out right now. I know that one of them is going to be the Glen Glenview, which is just north of Philadelphia, and then there's another one that's just north of uh, Albany, and then I'm not sure about the third one. I think it's in Connecticut, or they're moving some things around. I'm not really sure. So keep an eye out for that. So if any of you guys are in any of the places I'm going to be, please come out and say hello. Yeah, throw some shit at Tommy if you see him on the side of the throw stage. Some shit at me, yeah. yeah. Tell him three sides sucks. We already know that. Well, yeah. Yell it in the crowd. Yeah, yell it. <laughs> a tool. Exactly. Bring your signs. Bring your signs. Yeah. Well, 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 well. Will you give free backstage meet and greets to for Flip if you see a Brandvold as a tool sign? You know, that's a great idea. Let me see if that's something I could do. <laughs> Can't offer it up for Ace because you don't have that authority. But no, you know, you can see Bryn and Flip. If you want to meet Bryn, you know, have your ear talked off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Huh? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So this week we got a very, very cool guest sitting yes, down with do. us. This was rescheduled from a few weeks ago because he had some technical issues. We've got Scott Van Zen joining us. And some of you are probably like, who the hell is that? Well, if you are uber knowledgeable on Kiss songwriters, he's written a bunch of songs. Gene Simmons and Scott sits down and talks about co-writing with Gene for Revenge, co-writing with Gene for Carnival of Souls, what it's like, what the process was, being in the studio, what he saw, what he recalls in the studio for Revenge, in the studio for Carnival of Souls. Um, 
his impression of Bob Ezrin working with Bob and his impression of Toby Wright as a producer on Carnival Souls, plus a little bit of minutia on who wrote and recorded the musical intro to Psycho Circus. That, yeah, another bit of minutia we did. I didn't, I didn't know this. Yep. And what instrument and whose instrument was that intro recorded on? You have to listen to find out. It's very cool. Little These little tidbits are the things that us KISS fans love so much. We are, grows, we are growing your KISS knowledge base. Or we're just making you a bigger geek. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. You know, that your wife and girlfriend walk by and go, are you listening to those idiots again? Pretty much. Yes. Think, yes, they are listening to us again. Yeah. I think Andy Beersack's wife says it all the time. Juliet, she's just like, really? Speaking of which, Andy, congrats, Cincinnati. Although by the time you you listen to this, we'll know whether they've won or not. Won or lot, yeah. But I'm gonna I'm gonna jump on the Cincinnati bandwagon for this one. I am too. I really even even though I'm in California, uh, I want I want to see Cincinnati get this. I agree. I would love to see Cincinnati get a ring, you know. And I think they got a really. I'm not saying the Rams are a a significantly better team. I think this is going to be a really good game. Oh, I think it's going to be an outstanding game. I think it's going to be outstanding, like all the playoffs were. But I think Cincinnati's got a really good shot at winning this one. I agree. So, Scott Van Zen talking about writing with Gene Simmons. We'll see you at the end. Want to get your official three sides of the coin logo and shocker tee? Now you can. We ship worldwide. Get yours online at shop.threesidesofthecoin.com. Hey, Three Sides of the Coin world. We are really honored to have joining us today, Scott Van Zen. Scott, thank you. Hey. We, we, had a little, we had a little technical issues a few weeks ago, but it's all been worked out. And Tommy had some issues today, and I'm having issues with headphones. So bear with us. You know, we, we're, not, we're not pros at this. <laughs> we always said our production value is, uh, is it leaves a lot to be desired on this show because we just yeah. do it for fun. Um, Scott, so let's get a little bit of just your, like, five-minute background, who you are, and then we'll get into why you're on a KISS podcast. Okay, so, uh, and <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'm a guitar player. I'm an old gunslinger is what I am, but I, um, a lot of people want to know where I've been because uh, I hadn't been out in the public too much, uh, and I was doing ads and, and uh, TV stuff for a long the time. Stu the stuff that actually pays musicians money. I, uh, I grew up in a, in a house that was, uh, you know, riddled with craziness and drinking and divorce and stuff like that. When I had my uh, uh, daughter or my, when my wife was pregnant, I had a tour staring at it's a pretty good paying tour, really good paying tour staring at me. But I had just done my first national ad and had a choice to make. And I chose to get into advertising. I've done about 
350, 400 national ads. Good for uh, you, man. Yeah, that's huge. Um, probably sold lots of Mattel stuff. If you have kids or nieces and nephews and been around a television in the last 25 years, uh, Saturday morning, there's no way you have not heard me. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible. Um, cool. My love is guitar. That really drove all that the way I composed I would write something on the guitar and then I learned how to program keyboards and all that kind of stuff um and then my daughter who uh you know we I moved to Nashville because I could uh and do everything did everything over the internet I didn't have to run tapes and stuff like that I raised her in Nashville uh she's 24 now she actually rents a room from us upstairs um she's killing it here in vegas you know um it, it's crazy how vegas is made for pretty girls with personalities you know more than it is for me but when i uh when i when she got old enough to be out on her own then i just went back to my first love which was guitar uh, and I met John and you, you know me because of Jackie and John, the record label, you know, I got, I just got in, I put out an instrumental record. Then I put out this last EP we did. And, and, uh, I did a few things along the way that weren't advertising or television. You know, I wrote some kiss songs with Gene Simmons and wrote some other songs with some other artists and did stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I'm an underground guy. In some pockets, I'm really po popular. Some places in Europe, some places here in the States, you know, but uh, uh, just enjoying it, you know, seeing where, wherever it takes me. You know? So so let's, let's focus in on that songwriting with Gene Simmons. Um, we'll, we'll dig into each songwriting effort, but give us a quick overview. What songs have you co-written with Gene that KISS fans will be able to listen to? Well, the, the biggest one was the first cut, which was on Revenge, it's called Spit. And Revenge debuted at uh, number six, I think, uh, eight or six on, on the top 100. Uh, and it was a great record. I hung around the whole time. Gene was cool with that. Bob Ezrin was producing. I love Bob because of you know his background with uh, Pink Floyd and all that stuff great guy um and then the, the second re next record after that carnival of souls i got three cuts on that and i it's been a long time but it was like uh he gene named all these <laughs> they're like just the most sinister darkest <laughs> seduction of the innocent hate was the opening okay which i love that one People love that song I, I i love it too and i and so did bruce and bruce like man he said i love that riff you wrote it's so much fun to play and that was a. Uh, you know, that was my favorite Kiss drummer was Eric. You know, I think Eric's still with him, right? He's Yeah, Eric Singer's in, in makeup now. Yeah, yeah. he's uh, absolutely, uh, I don't know if you know Eric, but he is absolutely hilarious. Nobody made me laugh more around Kiss than Eric. You know, what's funny is we had um, Larry Mazer on last week, who was managing Kiss for the Revenge album. And he was basically saying the same thing about Eric. He's He just loves Eric, and Eric's just a ball to be around he, he really you know they all were but uh but he was really special um and then i got i five or six on the vault um now those, those, those are obviously demos that were never released they're only available via the vault yeah there was a song called carnival of souls that i wrote with gene 
he was in a Nirvana phase. You know, he loved to study new things and Smells Like Teen Spirit just came out and was just wiping all the rock out of the, <laughs> yeah. here, you know. That's probably why he was studying it going, okay, how do I get my name on this? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it just took a lot of years and he ended up putting it on a solo record, I think. Yeah, he had um, he had a solo record asshole. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So 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 you definitely have you know you're more than just the one one in and one done songwriter. You've been around Gene and wrote a lot with him. Yeah, so let's still- go all let's go all the way back to the beginning. How did you get introduced to Gene, and how did that first songwriting effort on spit come to be okay so my friend ken tamplin who has a huge vocal academy online you may have seen him i've heard of him yep ken tamplin vocal academy just an incredible singer uh i did a bunch of records with him and he's a great producer uh, as well and he uh him and i did a demo of two songs and my wife that I've been with for 33 years. She gave the tape to a guy named Bob Borbonis at A&M Records. And could uh, tape, I'm saying, because that's how long ago it was. Mm-hmm. And um, it was two songs. And Gene called me at home. And I thought it was one of my guitar. I taught a bunch of guys, just tons of guys, guitar in LA. It's one of the ways I made money in sessions before I started doing uh, TV stuff. He called me at home and I thought it was one of my students, you know, messing around with me. And I'm like, come on. It was good. Gene Simmons. It's Gene, you know, (laughs) the the low. And I'm like, this is Gene. This is Gene Simmons of Kiss. Gene Simmons. I imitated him on my record. If you listen to the vocal, I'm doing a Gene impression, the whole every single vocal. Nice. Um, And he uh, I know it's not. And I ended up hanging up on him, actually. And he called back and he said, is this you? It was like in the movie Rockstar. Is this you? And he goes, right. yeah. <laughs> and he goes, uh, I got this from Bob Borbonis. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, I knew that he had it. And I go, yeah, yeah. I go, I go, this is Gene Simmons. He goes, I said that. <laughs> he said, you know, he's a smart ass. <laughs> uh, said, uh, um, who's singing? And I says, my Ken, you know, he goes, who else is on? I goes, just us two. He played bass and programming. He goes, meet me at the Beverly Glen Deli uh, Friday at 12. And I said, um, well, let me call Ken. And he goes, I'll see you there. And he hung up on me. Well, <laughs> Ken, I had it coming, I guess, you know. I called Ken. I said, hey, I, I just talked to Gene Simmons. He wants to meet with us. And uh, Ken's like, all right, let's go. So we went down there and the first thing he asked me was how many Kiss albums? Like we meet him at the door. He met us at the door before we went in. Got there exactly 12, so did he. How many Kiss albums did you have when you was a kid? I said, I didn't listen to Kiss. And he said, what'd you listen to? Or why not? I said, well, I just wasn't into your guitar player. It just wasn't my thing. He goes, well, who'd you listen to? I said, you know, Jeff Beck, Rory Gallagher, you know, T-Bone Walker. You know, he's like, uh, oh, I love Jeff Beck. <laughs> and then he looks at me and I was, you know, I was 22 or something like that. You know, he looks at me, he's, 
I got long hair. I got a leather jacket. He goes, fans in, fans in. He goes, yeah, okay. And he looks at Ken. He goes, uh, Tamplin, Tamplin. He goes, nah, dye your hair, change your name. Tells Ken that before we even went in. <laughs> so we hang out with him a while, and he he goes, listen, I'm gonna. He just tells us what he's gonna. I'm gonna I'm gonna manage you guys. I'm gonna shop you to different labels. I'm gonna ask for a big number. And if I don't get the number, I'm not going to take the deal. And he did. He shopped us, and everybody big came down. He could do that. And we were at um, – it wasn't SIR, but it was another one like SIR. I can't remember where we rehearsed, you know. But I remember running into, like, other big bands there, like um, uh, grunge bands that were rehearsing there. But you know. So so, so were you and, and, and Ken actually in a band together or were you just writing songs together? And that's like, oh, crap, now we got to put a band together. I did a, a tour. I did five records, I think, five or six records with Ken. And we went on tour in Europe in the early 90s. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, he, Ken will tell you, he's a big fan of my guitar playing, you know, and he's always, he's just, it's just an amazing guy. Like Ken Tampa, I, I just can't say anything bad about that guy. He's just, he's, he, I had a cancer, I had cancer a couple years ago and he was very supportive financially, just whatever he could do. He was just there for me. He's wow. just a great person, you know, and, uh, I just can't say enough good about that guy, but we, uh, he said he found me there was a girl lucy lucy something and back in the day he said he went through hundreds of cds and ran into my demo and then that's how he ken found me and he said i'm gonna put you on a record i'm like whatever boom like a month later we're doing our first record you know uh this was i think maybe we hadn't done the gene thing yet so um yeah i'm trying to do the timeline but you know, uh, Gene shopped us to a bunch of labels. He got offered a, uh, eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars. Nope, no, not enough. And we're like, what? He goes, two videos, a record, tour support. You guys will be broke, hating each other. Gene always said, you know what? Hey, Scott, you know what breaks up bands? I go, what's that, Gene? Bands. <laughs> well, he would know. Yeah, he would. You know, so. We, you know, did all this and it's like, okay, it ain't going to work out. And I go, Gene, this is what I said to him. I go, Gene, I, um, man, I'd love, I'm a writer. I'd love to write some songs with you. He goes, what do you want for it? I go, give me a couple hours with Shannon ought to do it. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't have to pay money. Uh, another great person always treated me with this so nice. I don't know if you ever met her, but she was such a sweetheart. Um, but he says, he calls me, I think it was like Memorial Day or something. You want to write? And I said, yeah, yeah, when? He goes, now, come over. So I went over there and we started writing. And we had a pretty good system. You know, it was funny. All right, so it's before digital stuff, but I would, I had a TX4 track and I would put a drum track on one channel and then a bass on another and then uh, guitar parts left and right. And they sounded pretty good. I'd mix them down to one cassette. I'd bring them to Gene and parts. This was our system. He would listen to them. But if he wanted to shorten something, he would. He had the, one of those dual. Remember the dual cassette decks where you could record another cassette? Yep. Well, he yeah. would play one. He, and he had it down where he'd have his finger 
on the thing, the pause button recorded. And if he wanted to cut some like out four bars, he would just <clears throat> real fast. And he had that shit down. I'm not kidding. I wish I had those to give you guys so you could hear how yeah. money he could edit something on the fly. He got so good at that. And he would edit the whole, or if he wanted to add another chorus, you know, he could add it. So he edited that way. And the only thing you would hear when, when it was playing, you would hear like a little, like where right. he, but other than that, I mean, it was never out of time. You know, I was like, wow, good job, you know. So wow. uh, we, we, Gene and I hit it off musically. He, you know, he will tell you, he's been supportive. He gave me a great quote from my guitar school. You know, he's, he loved my guitar playing. He, he, he said that publicly, you know, that's why I do, because he did. And it doesn't hurt to have him on your side that way. Of course way. not. Oh, never. Uh uh. Uh, he's a great, just incredible music mind. You know, he loved Motown more than anything. Oh, he's a trivia genius when it comes to, to music. So I take, uh, I take my mom and my wife, that was my girlfriend then, to his birthday party. And he would have it at Jerry's Deli in L.A. And it's nothing but rock stars. And it's just funny because it's like you look down in a bowling alley. Right. Yeah, well, I was gonna say it had to be at a bowling alley because he loves to bowl. And and he's got the whole he rented the whole place and caters it, and then he's got a DJ playing nothing but Motown. And he could any Motown, he could you go, what about this song? He'd tell you who wrote it, you know, which is a lot of the same writers, but different. Who played on it, what time, what year, this all of it, you know. Um, the other thing is I don't drink you know, or take drugs or anything. I got sober really young and, and I used to, <laughs> I punched all my drink tickets already. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you know, I use them all up faster than most folks, but uh, you know, I think he, he liked that about me too, um, that I wasn't into anything like that. So, you know, we would hang out. He had a record label and as well when we were writing and he'd say, you want to go hear some bands? This was another funny thing that a lot of people don't know. Uh, and I'd say it was on, he had an RCA. Uh, yeah, Sim Simmons Records through yeah. RCA. And one of the greatest rock songs I ever thought, because my wife was used to intern for uh, Joe Joe Benson. Uh, was that his name? KLOS back in the day. Don't uh, know. So, because she knew the stats on his song on his label, which was House of Lords, and it was Can't yep. Find My Home. And they had yep. that. But, the, but RCA dropped the ball. They didn't have the product. It should have sold three million of that thing. It was number one, you know, for. Well, yeah. Remember that song? Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. The Stevie Winwood did it, but it's like their version of it was epic, you know. So where was I, I was telling you about them? Oh, so he'd say, let's go see some bands. So I'm at a club, a crowded club. I walk in with Gene Simmons. And. Somebody comes up with a CD and they hand it to Gene. Gene, this, this is my CD or a tape. And he turns around and he hands it to me. And he says, Scott, listen to this and tell me if it's any good. So that gets out before social media even that, hey, if you can get Scott to hear it. Now, right. Scott's got Gene's ear. Right. He's also working as A&R for nothing. <laughs> right. 
it's like, but you know, I heard a couple of things, nothing panned out, but I'm like, but what happened was my wife and I are going to dinners. We're getting invited to Sunday. Like, you guys want to come to our beach house? Like we're just, people are just hitting us up left and right and rolling out That's the standing. You know what I mean? It was great. You know, I'm like, thanks, Gene. And then one of my guitar students said, oh, this girl that works for Gene is going to, she's better just getting ready to sign us. And I go, really, girl? Like, Gene is, he does everything. And like the history book, that was Gene and three yep. we moved downstairs because, or we moved, yeah, we moved downstairs because they had the computers upstairs doing the book. I remember that. I was there the whole time, the first one, you know? I said, I don't know, no girl. What's her name? Give me her number. Get her number. And I tell Gene, I go, this girl work for you? He goes, no. And uh, I gave Gene the number and he called her. Like when I was there, I was like, it's Gene Simmons. Stop saying you work for me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I go, hey, you know, I mean, I told him what you said and she don't work for him, man. She's just trying to get some girl just trying to get laid. There you <laughs> go. It is, it's you know? got to be hard to be famous and have people just coming at you all the time like that. You know, that's got to be just, I can't even imagine what that must be like. His level of fame, too. That's like as big as it gets. Like, Gene, yeah. anywhere yep. in the world, everybody knows Gene. Yep. Yeah. Like Donald Trump or, or, or Michael Jackson or like certain people, everybody knows him. There's a lot of people that aren't la at that level. Yep. Right? No, you're 100% right that are famous but everybody knows gene you go to little pockets in the world they're like, you know you know that band kiss you know the big guy with the tongue oh yep. yeah i know him you know yep. farmers in the, <laughs> the rural areas you know they'll know yeah they, they they may not be fans they may not listen to the band but they know who he is yeah and uh you know, he was hilarious to hang out with, like him and Paul, where it's like hanging out with uh, Car uh, Carl Reiner and, and uh, Mel Brooks, like just a, a couple of like Jewish, uh, you know, vaudeville guys with their jokes and stuff. But they really had a cool banter uh, that they did. Larry uh, Davis, was, or not Larry, I, Larry Mazur was just saying that last week, too, that sitting and listening to those two talk is fantastic. Hilarious. Yeah. yeah really funny and paul and again you know that guy i mean they don't they don't they're fake anything that i think that's part of their success these guys like gene loves business but he loves the whole thing and you know I'll tell you another thing i mean it's like he doesn't talk about everything that he does for like the military and charity oh no exactly he doesn't you know it's like he's not like trillionaire chevron with their big check we just gave five grand away you know who cares you're right. millions you know gene's got a lot of money but man i'll tell you what i witnessed him giving away a lot of money he didn't say nothing about it and i know what he did for the military he was always respectful he sponsored a lot of he did a lot i'm not going to go into details but it's like i always like that about him yeah. uh, he was very grateful of, of the life that he was able to live uh, he loved his mother. You know, he's had a lot of good traits. Very, girl, you, when I was at their house, it was that like being at any other Midwestern family house, except for it was Shannon Tweed, who was like the B movie. Playboy know, model. Uh, yeah. yeah, Cinemax, you know. Yep. You're going up there one time, there's like all these cars, new cars. And I'm like, what's with all the cars, man? I didn't think you were into shit like that. I mean, his Range Rover was like 10 years old. 
you know? And I'm like, you God, you, Gene, you can get anything. He says, hey, Brun's fine, you know? didn't care he goes those aren't mine they're hers she's making a ton of money she was producing those movies you know she'd get in them take her shirt off next thing you know new cars more money you know but <laughs> yeah, you know you go over there and it's like the kids are running around she's hey scott you know it was like just any other family you know they they weren't messed up they were tight you know there was no shenanigans going on around there that i could see um I hung around a lot of rock stars and they didn't seem like rock stars at all. <laughs> right. Like normal people, you know, smart guy. And I mean, I was there when Sophie was just walking and in diapers. Nicholas wasn't much older, you know, matter of fact, I'll tell you a funny one. So when we, we brought a drummer up there and a bass player, because it was just Ken and I on the demo and we're meeting with Gene and, and this drummer, this is like 1990, probably 92, right? 91, 92. This drummer is just a kiss. He's like the army of army, you know, like. Right. Mark. You know, some people are, you guys, maybe. Yeah. I mean, oh, you know, we know them. We have one on the show. Yeah. No, Mark, on Mark, Mark, one of our co-hosts would be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I it just hanging out with him because I hung out with him a couple of years, quite a lot. I mean, sometimes every day, all week, you know, and then they'd go somewhere. And But this time we're up there. So the drummer is going to meet Gene. These are, this is the band that we're going to put together. This is before we start writing. Like Ken and I already knew Gene. We'd been around Gene. This is the band that Gene was going to shop for a record deal. Called Mystery Train. Called okay. He Mystery Train. Okay. Good looking guys, image, great chops, you know, good band. About five years too late, I think. Otherwise, massive. You know, we were Ken Tamplin. I challenge anybody to do that vocally. You know, he was just better than most. So, but we're sitting around this table outside, and the drummer had spent, people spent a lot of time on their hair then. Man. Yep. <laughs> He's got the, hair these guys are they're just dressed to the nine if anybody's famous it's these two <laughs> you know and the and the drummer's sitting right right across the table ken's by me bass players over on this side gene's right over here he's just telling us what i'm here's what i'm gonna do no 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 nicholas is now this is at the new house that was on the show but that was a different house then they right they rebuilt but, it yeah um you know, which I've been to both, but the one I wrote at was at the other one. But there's a there's a hose with no governor on it. What I mean by that is like, you know, you turn a hose on, it goes like this. Well, this fucker was like, you know, 20 feet or something. And Nicholas, he's like three years old. He's back there. And I see him and I I kick uh, Ken into the table. I'm like, look at this. Nicholas is with this hose. And in one swoop, he turns the hose on this drummer. And just soaks him. <laughs> <laughs> the guy was just, he was just embarrassed, right? And, and we're all laughing. Gene's like, hey, don't worry about it. It's a real moment, you know? And we always made fun of him that. Of that. And if I ever run into Nicholas, I'm, gonna, I'm sure he forgot, you know? But it's right. like, he did one of the funniest things I ever saw anybody do when you were about three, you know? That's fantastic. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And then I saw, you know, I didn't, talk to gene much if i you know gene still we email each other i send him i send him my new record i send him my last record he listens to it he gives me some 
you know, hey, good, great job. Love it. Love this song. You're writing. Love your writing. Glad you're still right. You know, stuff like that. He's always uh, um, he'll get right back to me, you know, immediately, which is cool. But I don't bug him. You know, I don't because I, we're not working together. I know how busy he is. He's got to get out there and do the Gene Simmons thing while he still can, you know. Right. 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 Yeah. No, that's a great point. He's got to do it while he can. Yeah, I mean, he's no spring you know. chicken. None of us are. We're all, you know, we're, we're, all of us rockers are moving through this era. But it's like, you know, he um, he's an ambassador to a lot of things. You know, you think about his message, you know, as much as it's like, I love the money and all that stuff. But he's like, look, man, stick to itiveness is part of his whole persona. And it's like, that's a that's an inspiration in my book. I watched him one time. We're walking up the stairs. And I go, so Gene, you're the biggest merchandising band ever, right? And he says, uh, ever. I said, bigger than Metallica? He says, not even close. Michael Jackson? Nope, not even close. And he stops and he goes, you know who's really big? I go, who's that? Disney. <laughs> Disney. I go, what, Gene? You're, that's your goal? He goes, yeah. Disney. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's a good goal for one band, right? Exactly. Like, yeah exactly well so let let let's let's circle back to your he invited you over and you were going to start writing songs and i assume this would be material that for the revenge album and would end up being spit yeah and um you know he already knew i could play and he didn't know i could write other than you know he knew i could ken and i wrote that stuff but he didn't we hadn't tried writing but i go you know let me Let's, I had a guitar and I'm like, you know, some kind of riff or something. Right. Find something. He go, I like that. I don't like that. And I go, okay. Uh, sometimes we do a reference with the little mic on the thing. I take it home and then I would bring it, I bring it back. You know, it sounds, that thing got, my house got flooded in Nashville and I lost my four track out of all the stuff that I lost. That was the thing that bothered me. I had all my tapes that I wrote with Kiss. You know, it's probably worth a hundred bucks, but it's like, I don't have them. Right. And I give these to Gene and he's, oh, this is great. And it just became, we just got locked into a groove. So we just kept doing it. Like I, And it was quick because he likes to, you know, make deals. I mean, I was on the phone with him or on, in, uh, writing with him one day. He was on the phone with somebody and it sounded like he was doing a deal. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm thinking about buying the Dodgers. <laughs> I'm like, damn, you know, the Dodgers, you know? So it's like, uh, he was all, he loved to get it quick. So I gave him the riffs and then, you know, we come back, but um, I don't even remember. Oh, uh, it's your phone. You know, that whole riff, we just start coming up with that stuff. I like that. I don't like that. He edited it and we'd relearn it. Then I would, um, he gave it to Bruce, if Bruce had a question. Now, and, and I'm assuming when he invited you over, he told you or you knew he was working on a new Kiss record at the time. Did he you know that? That's what you were? No, he said, let's, let's see if we can come. No, I didn't know. I didn't know at first. And then he, then he told me, you know, we're going to do Spit. Okay. Like, okay, great. You know, because I had never had a cut like that. I, I, um. You know, I had a lot of stuff on Ken's records already, but not a big record like that. And that was a pretty big deal. Scott, when you write music for you personally, 
do most of it do, do most of the songs start with just that a riff or an idea and then it expands from there can you walk us through for all of us that aren't musicians and don't know what it's like to write a song can you give us just a basic overview of kind of how you approach it yeah it, it's really it's like you know a song technically is the melody and lyrics that's the you know so but in in music theory, there are certain chords that work with other chords. Like if I was writing, maybe I'd have something in G, E, and C, and there's an E minor and an A minor, something like that. But if I have some kind of riff, I might just something that has a little bit of a hook to it, repeating things, you know, that kind of stuff. And then I would go into some kind of a, a vocal deal to get that repetition going now there's things i know now i lived in nashville for 14 years i wrote with, with actually some of the best writers on the planet but i learned a lot more and i didn't write long choruses and the key is things that can, people can sing right yeah and hum along to but it, but if you're humming nobody hums like if i was playing a like a if I, if I sang something over that, it wouldn't be, no, 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 it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be shredding, it would be like, maybe that's what I would sing. So that would be the guitar part hook I would come up with based on a vocal, and you're going to end up with things that are a lot more hooky than that. So then if you find, let's say you're, you're playing your riff and you find a melody that you're humming along to for an idea for lyrics, do you then record that just so you can remember the frame of reference? Absolutely. And, okay. and yeah, absolutely. Because the biggest mistake in my, okay, one of my best friends in Nashville, we're still friends, we still, and he, he wrote like three songs on my EP, uh, two or three songs, his name's Kent Blazy. He, he wrote, he's written hundreds of hits, but he wrote, Ain't Going Down Till the Sun Comes Up for Garth Brooks. He wrote, If Tomorrow Never Comes for Garth Brooks. He's written songs for just all these people. He said, I said, what's the key to songwriting? He said, whatever room you're going to be in, make sure you've got a pen and pad to write down your lyric idea. And in my case, you know, the this thing right here, man, the memos. And, right. But I always had little Walkmans that recorded and stuff like that. Just make sure you get the the, the idea, you know. Um, sometimes in the morning, you, you never know when ideas are going to hit you because there's not that many chords, but it's like just something that's hooky, you know. I repeat it. So it's a, you know it's an instant hook and then you camaraderie when you're producing it in other words an agreement if if two people do the same thing in the production it, then it's meant to happen what i mean by that is if you're playing just that if both guys do it to like two guitar parts it's like look what they're doing they meant to do that and a mistake right. sound like a hook okay so then, then Go ahead. I'm sorry. Please finish your thought. You just you just end up with you know it's it's all about the hook. Now I was gonna say okay I play in a top one of the top bands in Vegas. We do tribute, but we do we do medley tributes to '80s music, and we do 
our shows when we're at Fremont Street, we play the Main Street Fremont all the time. We also play Westgate. We have residencies and stuff. Is lined with women between the ages of forty and eighty. <laughs> you know, not too many eighties, but they know all of our lyrics because when we do Journey, four Journey songs in a row, they sing are singing "Don't Stop Believing." When we do Billy Squider, when we do Eddie Money, when we do ACDC, they know those lyrics. So it's like right. what. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and somebody said, why don't you do 90s? And they said, there's no freaking choruses. Well, what about, you know, Lenny Kravis is cool. I go, what's cool? Mm, internet. Oh, go, go. Are you going to go my way? That's not the same as, uh, feels like the first time by Foreigner. We do no. seven. Look, yep. That's bigger. That's, those are big old choruses. And these girls are just, yeah, yeah, you, I mean, that's a, no one's ever said that before, Scott, but that's brilliant. You're yeah. right. You're dead on when you think about it, that there's a lot of truth to that. Well, that shit's not going to last, but the 80s stuff will. Well, OK, so then I, I, I don't want to go too far off, but I have to ask one more question. Yeah. And this is a kiss related question, and I'll be the one who will hang on it for, you know, I will take the sword for this. I don't like Vinnie Vincent's solo albums because he makes it all about him and not about the song. I would say the same thing about Ingve Melmstein and some of those others. I wouldn't argue whether they're talented or not. That's not relevant to me. But how do you how do you approach a song and go, okay, this is the right lead for this song that is a complementary piece to the song versus making the song become secondary to you going little little little. Without a doubt, I agree with you a hundred percent. Here's what I say to my guitar students. You like Stevie Ray Vaughan? They go, why? I, they go, yeah, I love him. Why do you like him? Oh, he's great. But you know who he is. Yeah. What are you getting at? Well, why do you know who he is? Because you like his songs. Because right. Stevie Ray Vaughan, people say he's a blues guitarist. No, Pride and Joy was a shuffle. I mean, it was like a, a real song. Uh, the album he did with his brother had tons of great songs. Yeah. You know, he was a great writer. You have to be able to to um, to recognize the song. You know, Journey had five albums out, and Neil Sean is one of my favorite guitar players. He's one of the best melodic guitar players there is. But he was shredded, man, just shredded. But when they got Steve Perry and he started doing the melodies along with Steve Perry, boom! That library will last a thousand years because of that. Yeah, and that's one of the things I think is so interesting about Stevie Ray Vaughan is because the hooks and the melody of his songs become the solo. Exactly. Well, and, you know? and it's like all the Eagles uh, years ago, and it's like every it, it was at a, a, a place in, in California out of open air mountain thing, and people were humming all the guitar parts mm -hmm. as well because they were so hooky. I just watched yep. This guy, this like almost looking homeless guy, do all of Hotel California online. I'm like, damn, that shit is hooky, you know? Yeah, it's brilliant. It's it's always about the song. At the end of the day, it's the song that lives on. And to your point, the musicians might be extremely talented and influential, but it's the song that hooks you. It's the song you're singing to. And at the end of the day you know, and this might sort of be a little bit crass, but it's not about the musician, although the musicians are the ones that created the song, but it's not, you know, back to Tommy's point, it's not about the fact that, oh my God, it's Vinnie Vincent on that song. It's, is the song good? 
without that's it that 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 that's absolutely at the end of the day what matters and you know we we you know every band has done this but you know you find out years later oh it was ghost musicians it wasn't really the but you're sitting here going but it doesn't matter the song is still great i don't care if the bass player wasn't the bass player or you know in kiss's case i don't care if it was bruce kulik playing the bass and not gene simmons it was still a great song right yeah without a doubt you know it's funny about speaking of that a lot of the, i remember being at okay so on the carnival of souls gene brings in this bass <laughs> it's just a funny gene story and he and it's cool looking bass it's all pointy and shit like that and i remember we were riding he's signing shit all the time signing bases putting them stacking them handing them to a guy and a guy's running out putting them in a truck delivering them you know and he goes what do you think i paid for that bass and i look at it and i go mm, 300 he goes 214 or something like that it was less than what i said and i go looks good man he goes yeah 1500 dollars. i got a thousand pre-orders like he's already you know sold a bunch of these things uh just always doing shit like that you know what i mean but so i'm at this uh demo session and i'm playing i'm left-handed you know i don't know you guys can yeah all right so gene is um i'm playing his bass upside down and uh and I go, this is ridiculous. You're, you just got a pre-ordered, sold a thousand bases and I'm playing your bass at our demos. He goes, hey, you sound fine, go for it. <laughs> so a lot of those uh, vault things, the bass playing is actually me on it, on our songs, you know, not Gene. Well, yeah, and I think at the end of the day, Gene's the first person to say, hey, Scott, if you sound better than I do, fine, I don't care. You know, there's no ego in his, in his view that he's gotta be the one. If it's a great song and he didn't play on it, let's yeah. use the song. Yeah. Um, yeah, he didn't care. You know, he didn't care. The other thing he liked to do was uh, he liked to analyze. Um, I remember we broke down. Pet, we spent a lot of time listening to uh, Brian Wilson Pet Sounds, I think it mm -hmm. was. You know, he had all the separates. And then at, during the Carnival of Souls, we had Sergeant Peppers up on the four tracks up on the board. And we were, you know, uh, soloing each. You know what? That that's that's kind of that right there is an interesting, um, an interesting picture of Gene is in the studio recording Carnival of Souls, which, let's be honest, was Kiss trying to be grunge, mm -hmm. was trying to be a depressing. Yeah. You know, oh, oh, is me, you know, the the world sucks type of album. Yeah. And yet he's listening to Sergeant Peppers Good in the you. studio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, wait a second, you're trying to record an album that's miserable while you're listening to Sergeant Peppers. I'll give you one more about a recording. So I'm driving. I have this 71 Super Beetle. It's my first car. My sister gave it to me. We still have it. It's at my nice. sister's ranch and, and ranch in uh, Northern California. Gene hands me through the window Nicholas pian Nicholas's piano, toy piano. It's like this big. He goes, here, put this on that, because he was telling me, write me some uh, sinister clown music. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, you know, I can get in and in and I go, okay. So I did, if you heard the recording, uh, see ya. I went on the first studio album um 
where they put the makeup back on the original. Oh, Psycho remember? Circus. Psycho Circus. Yeah. That intro, that's me. Oh, really? I didn't oh. know that. And that's Nicholas's toy piano, huh? I, I, and and what I did, and I took my four track down. I think it was who produced that? Bruce Fairburn. Bruce Fairburn. Yeah. yeah. I, I set my four track on the top on the uh, you know the top of a of a hundred and twenty input you know tribe right. SSL, and we plugged four you know quarter inch to XLR boom, and recorded that in, and then they enhanced it. I sold that to Gene for a dollar. Oh. That, that song i didn't i mean i didn't write somebody else wrote we ain't in it so it doesn't matter you know right a, you just you just performed what somebody wrote yeah because you know that song is the the you know the the clown music that we yep. all work with you know so i there's no credit there but you know i was like dude why didn't i get credit on the record it just you know it was they missed it but i actually wrote that that's me i think they may have added a couple of things but most of that is what i did on my four track you know it's just funny because we just set it down on the on the top there i sold him there's a couple songs i needed some cash i go hey why don't you buy this because i looked at is this going to be a single and i knew what things were getting paid and i ended up a song outright he was good he was he was like that if i needed extra cash or something like hey gene but then, you know, the what happened, I started making money in ads and, and I'm like, you know, I don't need to chase this anymore. I, I got this career going. So we just kind of drifted apart that way, you know. Well, you know, well, some people don't stay in your life forever and you come in and out and you each got your own thing going. So 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 let's let's circle back to to um, your song, right? You're, you're writing a song with Gene. It's going to be on the Revenge album. Is Gene a songwriter? who sits down and is giving you directions on what to do, or is he sitting back going, Scott, just bring it. Let me just hear it. Let me do it. I mean, is, is, does he want to take control of the song or is he open to everything? Well, that makes sense. Both. It's actually both. He, you know, he was, like I said, a fan of my guitar and I could write a riff. I could always make, create things and he knew that and that's why i ended up writing 30 35 songs with him and and getting these because i could keep producing stuff like that um i could write a riff like that i was bringing them every day i'd bring them something different oh, it's a good one this is a good one you know uh lyrics that's harder for me and spit he's like i want it to be uh what i i wrote it about suicide I wrote it about murder or something, not murder, you know, something else, fist fighting or something, a bunch of things. And then I wrote one about trying to get laid. And he goes, this, no, it started with trying to get laid. He goes, this is a serious record. So then I went back and wrote some about suicide. And then, the, and, um, this is a serious record and they've got a song on there called, I just wanna. What <laughs> happens? <laughs> He tells me it's a serious record, so I go and write about suicide. Then I'm hitting all these heavy things, you know, uh, 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 the darkness of a soldier coming back from war, you know, shit like that. Just trying to, you know, and and what does the song end up? What is Spit about? It's about fucking around with fat girls, all right? That's what it is. <laughs> the bigger the cushion, the better the pushing is in the lyric. And he gives me this is what it's about. I go, you send me 
out to get Chinese food and you got a guy here in the back making you tacos, man. This is nothing what you told me to do. He said, and we had a big laugh about it because I didn't want to write the lyrics. I wanted to write the riffs, but it's like, it had nothing. It wasn't serious. If you don't listen to spit, I just, you know, it's, that's, why that's why I'm laughing. I'm like, this is a serious album. Come on. It's a kiss record. What kiss record is serious? I wrote that riff in two hours. I wrote lyrics for three weeks and none of them got used. And the whole riff got used. Bruce wrote a couple of changes. He ended up on it too. Um, you know, but it's like, I, it wasn't a serious record. But I, I'll tell you a, a great thing though. Like we, I remember going in there and listening to the riffs uh, pre-lyric. Bob Ezrin, you know, was producing and it was just, just the, the, the pushing, and I, I'll tell you this again about Eric Singer, man. That dude can hit those drums. He's a real drummer. And that shit was just on. It was good. And we listened to the whole record. And at the end of it, and it was, you know, through the subs in the studio and stuff. At the end of it, Paul goes, we're going to be famous. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good one. <laughs> good. You know, so... It's pretty much well known, you know, Bob Ezrin's a task master when he's in the studio. I mean, he, he doesn't take shit. He gives directions. What, what was your impression of watching Bob Ezrin Brilliant. work in the studio, but more importantly, work with two people of Gene and Paul's level who, you know, they got, they're at a level where they don't have to listen to anybody if they don't want to. You know what? They did. They listened to him. He, he had they it's like okay bob you know they did what he said he didn't i didn't see any resistance there you know was it was what were you seeing like sort of a a, a mutual respect gene yeah. paul had a lot of respect for bob yeah they seem like uh you know, I didn't interact with Paul a lot all the time. Paul was kind of an in and out kind of guy. Like I'd run into, hey, Paul, how's it going? And then, and then he'd leave and I was around Gene a lot. But Gene and, and, and Bob, got they were friends. They looked like they were friends, you know. They, they, they were very nice to each other, respected, um, respectful. Um, you know, I think Bob... I don't want to get Bob in trouble, but I remember a stripper brought a cake down for his birthday. And he said, <laughs> this was a great moment for me. All right. This is like a because this is Bob Ezrin, for God's sake. I'm yeah. Going, how do you get the tone on comfortable? Would you, you know, I'm buggy. He goes, Jesus, Scott, leave me alone. Okay, come here. And he's telling me all this stuff with now. He said, it was just, oh my God, you know, I mean, the wall and and dark yeah, side. No. You know what I mean? I get it. I totally understand. He's given this stripper. She's not naked, but it's like, it's not a stripper. It's a cake girl, like a cake right. but, but it's like, you know, she's stress sexy. And he yeah. stops and he points at me. He goes, that's Scott. He's a great guitar player. And, he, and he's giving her a tour. I'm like, fucking A. A moment. <laughs> wow. Bob um, yeah, I mean, he... Uh, he was amazing, man. He was amazing. What, did, did you ever see Vinnie Vincent in the studio? No, only people I saw were Bruce, who I really, he was a great guy and always kind and super nice player, super nice guy. He lives here now, but I haven't, I haven't hooked up with him here. Um, you know, COVID and all that, like people, yep. are, but it's, they're coming out of their houses now. It's, it's coming around. 
but he uh, um, he was great, and Eric, and then Paul, you know. Um, and, but mostly, I hung out with Gene. I hung out with Gene a lot. You know, he was, you know, Gene's, you know, a guy, a guy who doesn't drink. You know, if he's not touring and doing all that, you know, I remember he, you know, he loved he loved girls. There's no, I mean, it's like <laughs> that's no secret, right? Yeah. I would sit when he was on phone calls. I'd just go through the. Geez, her? No kidding. Gee, I didn't know. No. Oh, his book. Oh, books. One time, yeah. here's, here's a moment. I had a little PV decade. Remember PV stuff? Hartley PV. Like the, it was half as much cost-wise as anybody. Else, but I had this little amp I'd bring over to Jeans when we were going through the riffs before. I, and he's plugging it in for me, but he's booting with his cow. He wore cowboy boots all the time. He's booting gold records are leaned like books up against the wall. He's pushing it. This is before I had one at all because I got a couple of gold Kiss records, right? He He's pushing them out of the way with his boot to plug in my amp. And I go, ah, he goes, what? I go, are you kidding me? I don't even have one of those. Like they were everywhere. There yeah. were gold and platinum records everywhere. And he has the coolest one I ever saw, which was above the fireplace there. I'm sure he still got it somewhere. It was 25. Yeah, it's like the 100 million award. No, it was 25 million. It, okay. Yeah, I know they've probably, have they gone past 100 uh, million? World, worldwide, it's, I think it's like oh, it close to or over 100 million worldwide. I remember the day that I got mine for Spit. You know, it was it was a big day. I still have it. It's right in the front door when you walk in, you know. No, I think it's awesome. That's an achievement. That's a great achievement. But yeah, but see, that's the thing. They don't even get that. We did, we did a an episode a long time ago called "Of Mice and Men," and it was about Ace Fraley and all the mice that were like climbing on his costumes and shit in his house. And now he had gold records under the sink, and the water was leaking in his him. bathroom. His yeah, alive his gold record was under there. there. <laughs> you know, and it just blows my. mind. Yeah, the old Saturday Night Live that Susan Lucci never won an Emmy and they did a skit where they were having oh. Emmy fights at the, you know, everybody else had an Emmy. They're, they're throwing them at each other. They're using them to hold shit up and keep doors <laughs> open and everything. One yet. It was kind of like that, you know. That's exactly it, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, he, you know, none of that stuff was really important to him. Uh, you know, he, uh, I mean, it's important because it's, it's cool. I remember, so I'm at the new house and he has, I got a book, he's on the phone I'm, and I'm looking through his book and I see, or a book, he's with Shaq in the book. And I go, he gets off the phone, I go, wow, you, this is when the Lakers are just running over everybody. Like, yeah. you know, they're just, you couldn't beat them, him and Kobe. And I go, wow, you're hanging out with Shaq. And he goes, no, Shaq's hanging out with me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that classic gene you know yep yep exactly exactly um so you, you you write you you write spit you get one you've got one song co-write on revenge and how does the how does the relationship continue to carnival souls where now you're going to get more co-writes what what transpires between those two albums you know they love the song gene loved writing with me we're doing another record let's write some more songs and you know it wasn't every day but when we were writing we were writing a lot so it it was a success the the album it wasn't a single 
but it was a successful song. It was well re received by the fans uh, as a, you know, I, I still get notes on me. Hey, you the guy that wrote, you know, I'll throw it up every now and then. Like somebody will say something about Kiss or do you know anything about Kiss? And I'll go, yeah, I wrote that, you know, <laughs> I wrote a song on that record, you know, um, but it's like, they just, he, he was like, okay, let's keep writing. So we did, you know? So, so when you start writing for the Carnival Souls album, did Gene tell you the new direction they were going with this album? Because obviously revenge was much more classic hard rock, yeah. it, you know, and, and Carnival of Souls, you know, and I'll be the first to admit, I, I don't like it, but there's a lot of Kiss fans who do. It is clearly an attempt to be grunge. Yeah, I, and, and, you know, that was a, I had to work harder at that because it was away from what I was doing. But the one, the one song, I mean, I couldn't tell you the other songs. I, if I heard them, I go, oh, yeah, I remember doing that riff because I was kind of emulating what was going on, which quite frankly, I thought was beneath my abilities because I worked really hard to get where I was on guitar. And then all of a sudden people are kind of being looser and, you know, my guitar students weren't practicing as much. They didn't have to like everything changed not for the better. in, in my opinion. Right. Well, do you, uh, sorry, I, I just, do you feel that or understand why smells like teen spirit literally just destroyed 80s rock we were talking about this last week because i don't and it's not that i don't think it's a good song or any of that but i just don't get it so from a musician's perspective to go on further with what you were just saying what changed i, I, I think i have some some ideas Please. i think that i think bands were i think bands were mimicking bands like they they had just were churning them out like corporate bands yeah, well I, 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 I would clarify that a little bit and saying bands weren't necessarily doing that. The record labels were yeah. the rec the record labels were like, wow, we got a genuine success with Motley Crue with Poison. Let's go get another band that looks like and sounds like Poison. And then let's make another band that sounds like the band we just made. So now all of a sudden you're three or four generations removed. That's what I think killed it because we play Motley Crue songs and they're good. And we play Poison songs and they're good. Now I was not a fan of Poison then, but when I, you know, when we go, they hit the dance floor and it goes into uh, into the medley and uh, I mean, that stuff is hooky and it's good. And these other bands were just mimicking that, but they didn't have the melodies of these exactly. bands. Exactly. And, and, and when I heard Kevin, Kevin Dubrow, Quiet Riot, mm -hmm. he was talking about these, these cookie cutter bands. And I could relate because that dude, if you listen to his voice and how big it was on Come On, Feel the Noise, it was like, it was really something special. It, it was different than what they were doing an impression there was like this singer coach elizabeth sabine was teaching everybody how to have high voices and it was just too much 
I think Kurt Cobain was a pretty good writer. I think he had that um, ability to write a melody. And it was at a time when there weren't a lot of melodies going on. It's like Eddie Van Halen changed guitar. That was my favorite. I love Stevie Ray Vaughan and Eddie Van Halen the, the most. And people were mimicking him and then they got off the, the track because they didn't realize Eddie was a blues guitarist that really turned it into rock. He was like a cross between the two and he wasn't a metal guitarist. No. Like so do you think that he changed guitars to get away from his original sound because too many people were, were copying him? Eddie, um, I don't, I think Eddie just did what he did. Like, you know, I got to know Alex a little bit. He was a dad at my, um, at my daughter's school in LA when we were in LA, his, his kids were there. And, you know, Eddie would, Alex is going to go out for the night. Eddie's sitting on the edge of the bed and he is practicing. And Alex goes out, he stays out all freaking night and half the next day he comes home and Eddie's on, still on the edge of the bed. You know, I relate to that. That's what I did when I was young. And you just start finding shit. But I think Eddie would stumble on things. I think he was locked into something like much like Hendrix was at a different time where there had been nothing. I don't think he had a filter where he had to follow anything. He just locked into stuff. And his technique was so impeccable, but he didn't like, I'll give you an example. I got to change this. So it's like if he had a technique where he was doing a, a lick, like he wouldn't follow the scale. He would just take it down the string. So instead of the scale, it would be like, you know, you heard him in the song. He'll all... you know, you've heard him in songs like that, right? Yeah. It's not in any key, but the, the technique was so impeccable. He could sell you almost anything, you know, not to mention what is he doing? Like, I remember being a kid going, what the hell is he doing? You know, right. the, uh, somebody get me a doctor. There's a harmonic thing. And I stumbled on it after like three years after that record came out. This one night I was like, I go, oh, oh, there it is. I had no idea how he was doing that because in the middle of the song, he just does this. this right. You know, I'm like, and that was like, you know, when he started with the... All that, like, what the hell is that? We didn't know. Right. But but do you, like, when Dave left and Sam comes in, he, it's like his, he switched guitars, he went to whatever it was, and it's like the tone changed. And I'm wondering, do you think as a musician, him being such a, a great guitar player in your eyes, do you think he changed purposefully from the sound of that Frankenstein guitar to something completely different because Sam joined? Or do you think he was trying to distance himself from what it was because too many people were just copying exactly what he was doing? Or, 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 let, or let, let me add, or was he changing just because that's how he was evolving as a guitar player? I, I think it's that. I, um, his writing got really good. And, you know, he is so good on guitar that you don't really realize how great he is at, a, at piano. Like he's really good at piano and you don't realize how good his drummer, his brother is of a drummer because his, the guitar players are freaking good. Right. 
Right. But um, his tone was always good. Personally, to me, the opening tone was like the freaking stars lined up and gave us that. Like, yeah. Van Halen, like that shit is like, are you kidding me? I, I pull it out, you know, pretty regular and just listen to it. It still blows my mind. And I have a bunch of, I don't know if you've heard the isolated uh, tapes. I can send them to you. I got like 30 songs where it's just the guitar. Oh, I'd love to hear some of that. Yeah. I've heard bits and pieces, but oh, not, you know. Yeah, no, this is like just the guitar track. Like everything's muted except for this. It's, I don't know how they did it. Somebody had it. And, you know, I mean, the guy was constantly inventing different stuff. I, I don't, you know, there's like you said, Ingve. Like I watched Ingve at the House of Blues and I was like, oh my God. I can't believe somebody can do that on the guitar. And by the third song, and I hate saying this, I was like bored. I was bored. That's my point. I'm not saying that he isn't an incredible musician. It's just there's no song there. There was no, there was no I, I didn't think he could write anything, but he, you know, he was, he was so technically proficient, not even technically, he had incredible feel. I mean, he played Red House, the blues song, and I'm like, you need to do a blues album, Ingve. That shit was good, you know, but I, it just wasn't my thing where, where Eddie, you know, was always inventing different stuff. I, I've stopped buying Van Halen records. You know, I was just like not into it as much. I bought the first couple. I thought the first couple with Sammy that like was were great. And I, they were all great, you know, but I just, um, I wasn't into it as much, you know, nor was I. It's like, I, but, you, but you know, I think part of what, what it, it's hard to explain but, you know, when a band releases their first album, maybe their second album, there's a lot less external influences on that music. But if they succeed, the external influences come swarming around them. Record labels, management companies, publishers saying, do this, don't do that, more of this, less of that. So it becomes harder for bands to stick to their guns, so yeah. to speak, as they get more successful. And I can imagine when Sammy joined Van Halen, it's like, okay, they already were at a level of success that was beyond what most people could imagine with Dave. Mm -hmm. Sammy comes in, and I, I can remember that change, and I think there was a lot of people going, this is it, it ain't happening. How do you replace David Lee Roth? It's just not going to happen. And then... They proved all of us wrong. Yeah, they went, they actually- They went even higher. Well, here's my theory with that. See, Dave, nobody could outperform Dave back in the day. I don't know if you got to see them when they were- Oh yeah, yep. I mean, well, I I who is that good at performing? Nobody. Well, and and, that, and that, that's what we say a lot is, Dave might not be an incredible vocalist, but that's not his role. His role was the ringleader of a three ring circus. He was the showman. He was the front man. Well, and so uh, swinging like Tarzan. He, yep. I remember Eddie did one solo. I saw him in, this must have been like, it was the second album, Van Halen 2 tour. And he, during one guitar solo, he rode a fake horse. Like remember them when you're a kid, you had those horse heads and he, yep. it was a big, one of those big, like it was yep. big styrofoam or foam. Yep. He rides that across the stage, just behind Eddie. There's a, and then swings 
like he took it off. He's got the Tarzan thing. This is all during one guitar solo. You know, he he did martial arts, really good martial artist. Oh yeah, yep. I mean, degree black belt from my understanding i mean if he wasn't he's that's hard school if he was only a one first degree black belt you know swords and all that stuff but sammy had the high voice with the grit when it sounds like a man crying in tune it sells well sammy you know again in my opinion sammy is more of a musician less of a front man And I don't want people to scream because, yes, he's the lead singer and he is the front man, but he's not a front man like David Lee Roth was a front man. Like he no, that's that's the whole point. Day, especially Van Halen, you got something that was incredibly unique, not just one incredible guitarist with an okay singer and a you had everybody was incredible in that band so you know we you know as fans were sitting here going oh my god david lee roth is leaving you cannot that was such a unique person a unique element that you can't imagine success going on afterwards yet sammy comes in the band evolves and i'm sure there was some internal evolution going on of like okay we know what we're under the microscope here and Sammy comes in and now you've got a guy who might be less of a front man, a ringleader, but brings the bar up for singing and musicianship and everything else that surprise brings Van Halen to a whole nother level that we never imagined. Sammy had a big career. He had bigger songs than Van Halen had. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're doing covers. I mean, Ice Cream Man's a cover. You really got me as a cover. Yep. Yep. You know, um, you know, he was coming off of uh, I Can't Drive 55. Yeah, VOA, Voice of America. Your Love is Driving Me Crazy. Those, mm-hmm. are, those are big songs. Oh, no. Yep. Yep. And um, also, also the message in his lyric writing, he had a little bit more of a seriousness that I think got girls listening to Van Halen. I think girls love David Lee Roth. Right. But but I but I think they really listened to Sammy because that's when the record started. Because girls buy records. Gene told me that. That's who buys records. Girls. You know, mostly. And they bought those records, man. And uh, why can't this be love is more of a like they they dug it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was really good. The beginning of it was great. It's still, you know, Eddie was really a, just an exceptional producer. I think producing a Van Halen record. Of course, I heard Van Halen, see, Gene, you know, that Gene has a tie. I, yep, I, yep. I thought Michael Anthony was Gene. Did you know that? You know, mm-hmm. the picture in the back where he's looking down there, I think it's Gene Simmons because he was, like, that was a rumor that was going around. Oh, yeah. That, hadn't done, that was the makeup was still on, right? Yep, so, yep. You so, didn't know. Didn't know could have been Gene, you know. I listened to Running with the Devil and um, and other song. I'm like, play it for me, Gene. And we, he, you know, he played it for me. It didn't have that, you know, that tone or that punch. It was good. It was good, but it didn't. It wasn't like like how good it got to be. That was all Ted Templeman. He really knows. He was an incredible producer. And, and, and so, so the first thing I noticed, so the drum part, this had to be a Ted Templeman because it was different. They didn't change. 
Alex was doing a, a 16th note thing on running with the devil. And so it's like chi 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 chi. Okay, so how does it start out though? Boom, boom, boom. That's you in the chest, man. That was a producer going, This is too washy. Yeah, that's the producer saying, I know what we can add to make this a great song, not just a good song, but a great song. And, and, and producers are so important. Also, the, and I don't know if this was Eddie. But I think it was Ted Templeman because it had to do with the studio. But the way that they ran reverb on one side and ran the signal hard on the on one side, his guitar tone, because that guitar tone is like, are you kidding me? How do you do this? Like, you know, it's just so good. <laughs> well, you know, I love, I love, I love when we get off track. But let's circle back to Carnival of Souls. So. What, what I want to try and get from you is if you had any feeling or insight, I mean, that, that was, okay, so Revenge comes out. It's an incredible album. Kiss fans love it. Sales don't match the love because it was coming out basically at the birth of the grunge era. The Revenge tour didn't perform nearly as well as the Hot in the Shade tour before it. Again, because of the changing musical climates. So now you've got Kiss going back into the studio for another album. Were you aware of discussions or concerns within the band of like, you know, we got to change. We got to stay with the times here. We've got to, you know, we got to become a grunge band. We're bringing Toby Wright in to produce. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know about the politics of the, of the, um, you know, that part of it, but as far as the songs, heck yeah. I mean, we were, you could hear it. We were chasing it, you know? I mean, thank God hates on that record because to me, that's the coolest riff I ever wrote on a Kiss record is the opening of Hate. Like that is just badass. And, 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 and real quick, the three songs you were on were Hate, um, In My Head, yeah. which Jamie St. James from Black and Blue is also a co-write on. And um, I confess, no, no, I confess was Ken Tamplin, um, Seduction of the Innocent, you were also on. Yeah. Yeah. And that record, they, you know, it didn't do, I mean, I don't even, I didn't even get a gold record from that. I mean, no, I mean, that, remember, so timeline of that album's recorded, done in the can, they put the makeup on, and after the reunion has started, it's kind of just dumped out onto the market by the label, and there's very little, if any, marketing and promotion because it's 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 it doesn't sound like Kiss, and Kiss is now back in makeup, and it's a con totally different band as right. well. Right, and and what I got was from people talking to me about Kiss because you know Kiss fans are big fans, and when they know you know, I run into, I play with bands on Fremont Street and like six months into the thing, somebody go, you wrote with Kiss, you know, they're like a little kid all of a sudden mm -hmm. <laughs> because of Kiss, you know, but they, they liked it because of hate. That's what I get a lot of that song. They go that riff, because, okay, let's go to Nirvana again. I think a big part of why Nirvana was successful is what Dave Grohl did coming into It Smells Like Teen Spirit. I think the drum part, the opening riff of, of Smells Like Teen Spirit was so powerful. Yeah. That it, because it's hard to deny. And it wasn't 
like we were playing, everything was in the box musically with all the other bands. And that's a weird. That was weird. But when he came in, man, it like Dave Grohl could hit the drums. And I heard that and I went, wow, that's pretty cool. And then it just went from there. You know, there were dynamics in it, 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 it you know. So I think that's what happened there. Um, I think, you know, looking back at the Carnival of Souls, it's like we had a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. Uh, but we were chasing something that wasn't them. Like we do a, we do a kiss medley in, in our band. We do, uh, uh, you know. <laughs> That's just boom, the dance floor. Yep. And then we go, we do like first course of that. And then we go into. <laughs> right. And then we, uh, we come out of that into. Uh... Okay. See, I don't even have to sing this shit and you know exactly what I'm playing. Well, well yeah, you know, and, and, and that, my opinion of why I don't like Carnival of Souls is it doesn't have any of that. Well, yeah, Kiss is not a depressing band. Kiss is a band of have a great, raise your fist, have a great time, party, rock great. and roll all night. You know, if you look at their entire catalog before that, you can't really sit here and go, man, there's some depressing shit in the Kiss catalog. There, there isn't. Well, maybe the Peter Chris solo album, yeah, but yeah. that I like that record. <laughs> <laughs> and we end with uh... so 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 yeah i mean that that to, to your point scott that's the thing about carnival souls is people are going to be like oh it's a kiss record wait a second i'm not feeling happy and good after listening to this record what 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 happened here and and as that was coming out Music fans, I think, were becoming smarter, if that's just the simple way to explain it. Like, the the fans of real grunge are going to sit here and go, you think I'm going to buy Kiss doing grunge? Come on. That's Kiss. That's not grunge. That's not Alice in Chains. That's not Nirvana. That's Kiss pretending to be. And then you got the Kiss fans and even just the 80s hard rock fans going, I like Kiss, but what am I listening to here? This ain't, this ain't a fun time album. You know, another song we do in another medley, we do, uh, um, it's a, just a mishmash. Like we'll do bands and we do a, a medley. We come out of a Duran Duran song into, I was made for loving you. That really. no, that's uh, no, uh, out of, uh, it's Rod Stewart. And then I was, uh, you know, and I bet people love it. They dance. Oh yeah, I mean that. Our if we we do we work we have like 250 songs in our set. If you go sit in a diner and listen to a classic rock radio station, it's pretty rare you'll hear something that we don't do. Because <laughs> yeah. we'll do 60, 70 songs in a night where other bands are doing 35 because we're doing medleys. You know, right? Meat and potatoes, they call it. You know, but, but people love it, and it's obviously successful. That was disco. They were chasing the disco thing. 
You know. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're the first ones to admit on this show throughout their entire career, Kiss has chased a lot of trends. They chased disco with "I Was Made for Loving You." You know, during the '80s, they were chasing Def Leppard and Bon Jovi and White Snake and everything else. And then, you know, Carnival Souls are chasing grunge. I mean, you know, you could sit here and go, "That's not good," but that's also how a band survives for 50 years. Is sometimes you got to do what you got to do to make it through the next what year. The album that the stones did where they did disco and that was one of their best records like you know you you adapt i i didn't have a problem with that disco thing really i look back so you know you look back at stuff that like i hated the Bee Gees. i hated right. them. now i'm like damn that shit was brilliant no wonder yep. you know wow these guys could really it was unique they could sing harmonies it had every it had the big harmonies the high voices that the men singing high it had everything that would make crying. you know what i mean it's like but back then i'm like this shit's so like i was you know a kid playing guitar i was like i don't want to hear these this. guys are the these guys are the enemy of my music ah, <laughs> well and we, we determined a while ago theoretically that kiss is responsible for disco because Alive sold so many copies, which gave Neil Bogart at Casablanca the money to put out Donna Summer, the Village People, and all this other oh, stuff. That's yeah, cool. so really that's their fault. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. yeah. But I listen to that now, like some of the singing on that era of disco and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Some you know, it's amazing. But when you're a kid, you just want to come on, man. Yep, exactly. Let me hear this crap. <laughs> yep. So, so when when Carnival Souls was being recorded, um, were you in the studio hanging around like you were with Revenge? Yeah, a lot. Yeah. So, 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 talk to me. What was your sense of the 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 mood, the feeling in the studio amongst the band as they were in there recording? Was were you sensing anything? Well, they everybody was getting along good, but it didn't it it didn't feel it felt re, uh, ritualistic more than when we were in Revenge. Revenge had a ton of energy around it. You could just tell. I mean, it debuted big on the charts. I don't think it got past number six, but it was that's pretty good. Yeah, you know? sure. And uh, this one just didn't have that kind of vibe to it. We were hanging around. It was still fun. It was all that. Now, now the 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 word after you know over the years is bruce kulik really took the lead on carnival of souls meaning he was involved heavily in that album did you get that sense was he in the studio was he yeah. more involved with carnival souls and what you saw him in the revenge yeah yeah definitely but so was i because i only wrote one song on revenge. sure sure um and bruce wrote you know uh i don't know you know, weird. like in Nashville, you go into a room, you write stuff, but it's like, you know, he got added to stuff later that I wrote and because of a riff or something like that. According, according to Wiki, of the 12 songs, Bruce has got writing credit on eight. Yeah. So, you know, he was he was there. But but here's the deal. See, I worked with Gene. Like when I wrote the uh, um, song with the guy from what was it? Black and Blue. Black and Blue in my head. With Jamie St. James. I never met Jamie. I, I like I didn't even meet him. Like we didn't sit in a room and write it. It was like Gene would be, oh, that's a good I 
you know, I forgot about that, but I remember like, I, you know, I knew lyric. I'm like, whatever, you know, yeah. like change the, the, the percentages and things like that because something would change. But, I, you know, I figured the whole opportunity, that's how it was, you know. So how, I how, how involved was Toby Wright in Carnival Souls versus what you saw Bob Ezrin's involvement in Revenge? The producer? Is that who yeah. produced? Uh, yeah. I don't remember him at all. I, I don't I don't remember him. I remember hanging around Bruce Fairbairn more than I do. And I was just there dropping off like, you know, hey, Gene, saying hi and bringing the clown music in there. I don't remember the producer from Carnival of Souls. Uh, that might right there say a lot. They might tell you everything right there. I, I remember a producer, but Bob Ezrin, his presence was massive was massive i remember specific conversations with him i remember him show me here put the mic right here and then we did this with a 414 and this with a 57 and like i remember that stuff but i was you know i remember i broke up with this girl and i just wore out the wall cassette I had to buy another right one. well yeah bob ezrin had a spot in your in your life you know a, a lot of people i mean he just you know i and i went back when i became a because i just all i cared about was guitar and then I, you know, I learned a lot about looking at that different with Gene, Ken Tamplin as well, though, you know, he was my main influence with writing, uh, you know, turn this stuff into songs because I just wanted to play, you know, to me, like, I just wanted to get to the next solo. Uh, now I get it. I mean, should I, I wrote over a thousand pieces of music for TV and there's no lyrics. So you got to have something that's hooky for that to happen. So yeah, that's, <laughs> did, that's did crazy. Do you do you recall Gene or anybody saying, "Oh no, this we got to sound more, got to sound more like Alice in Chains. This has got to sound more grungy. This has got to sound more depressing." I mean, were you were you hearing comments yeah. or directions like that? Yeah, I, I mean, I can't, but yeah, that was that was going on. Yeah, definitely. You know, copying that, and because like Carnival of Souls, the song. Uh, um, I mean that's like smells like teen spirit. Like we were trying to copy some. And and as as the songwriter, is it you know, again, I've I'm not a musician, I've never written a song, I've never been in the studio. Is it within your your ability to sit there and go, Gene, I don't think we need to sound more like somebody else you need to sound like kiss or do you just follow the directions you're given well i mean i um you know i was writing with kiss i i found that early on you know that's what he wanted so i just brought what he wanted you but give him the, what he what he requests yeah and he and he was experimenting and, and actually you know it wasn't a success but as far as my life and something that happened many years ago it was a, a success because i got to do um I got to do a lot of cool stuff with Gene Simmons and learned a lot about it. Sure. But as far as, you know, like that music it won't last a hundred years from now. You're not going to rock and roll on It'll still be around. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, let's just, let's be honest. Let's look at the Carnival of Souls album. The only person who's ever played any song off of that live is Bruce Kulick when he does solo shows. Right. Kiss, yeah. Kiss, Kiss has never played Carnival anything off of Carnival Souls Live, and I could 
feel pretty confident in saying they never ever will play any I mean that that album that album it's got a kiss logo on it and that's about it yeah yeah and like I said I mean the 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 saving grace for that and I've had a lot of people it's hate it's the riff sure yep it's just bad out badass it's the first song well there's a lot of people that will say hate feels like it could have been a revenge song I think it it was yeah I agree I think that riff was that way and then um but it was about hate <laughs> you know it's all it would almost be interesting you know playing it's what if games skinny girls yeah <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't it be interesting to take the songs from Carnival of Souls and have Bob Ezrin produce it. How would it have turned out sounding? Well, it still would have been depressing. Okay, so, so check it out. So the wall was dark. Sure. But it, yep. still, it still had a vibe about it, it. It didn't. The wall lyrically was a very, there, there were, it was a dark album, but musically, you would sit here and go, oh yeah, I'm having a, it's a, I love this talk until you, until you stop and go, what the hell are they singing about here? Exactly. I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was about like the, the, the Nazis and shit kind well, of. Well, exactly, exactly. And, and like, and, and just the, the, you know, the, the man holding you down, all this bad stuff. But I think it would have been a massive hit. I think it would have been a massive hit, you know, because, he would have. He was that good a producer. Yeah. You know, he would. He, he would have kept the underlying meaning of the lyrics because I. I will admit, there the lyrics on many of the Carnival Soul songs are very deep and meaningful. You know, Paul singing about his son and everything else. But I think Bob Ezrin would have made the songs enjoyable to listen to. Well, it's like okay, so you know. Def Leppard sells a couple million records and then Mutt Lang produces them and they sell 12 million. And then their next record, they sell 12 more million. And now God, I don't know how many hundreds, you know, hundred million or whatever they sold. And he does, you, you go, go and look at Def Leppard, go and look at Mutt Lang records. And it's like, holy shit, the cars, that's yep. totally different. You know, to me, the best rock and roll record ever, ever is Back in Black. I think sure that's the best. If you, when I buy a car stereo or headphones, when I got my in-ears, cause we're all in-ears now, I got these really good uh, um, ultimate ears. They're called, they're like thousand bucks, man. They go in, they you get molds made. You put them in. The first thing I listened to was back in black. When I got my car stereo 25 years ago in my Nissan Maxima, and I got it upgraded because I made a bunch of money off of an ad back in black. That's the best rock record. Mutt Lang. Now that's vastly yep. different than the cars. Yeah. Hey, his wife, ex-wife, she sold tens of millions of records. Yep. Vastly different than Def Leppard. If you're good at producing, you, you play can to the strengths it. of the artist. Yeah. And and I just I think. You know what? Working with Bob Ezrin, he was one of them guys. It's like, it's like if you watch somebody that's a martial artist or, 
you know, that's a, a basketball player or something. They're just good at it. Like he had this vibe about him that was like, wow, this this guy knows what the fuck he is. What, what, what's, was there was there maybe a vibe from Gene and Paul during Carnival Souls of almost like we don't really care? We're just going through the motions here, but we don't really care about this album. Right. Well, no, I'm going to say no, because Gene didn't do anything like that. He's fairly, you know, like he said to me, you know, I work harder than anybody, you know, and it's true. I mean, he he works hard. Well, you know, and I'm not saying he they weren't working hard at it, but I'm just saying that, you know, on their mind. Again, maybe maybe the reunion was already well, I, you know, brewing behind the scenes and, and, and Gene was just like, let's just, let's go through the motions here. I'm going to bust my ass. We'll do our best, but you know what? We don't really care what happens with this record. I I'll say this. I say that, um, that could be the case because of what happened with it. Because I think if he, you know, like revenge was a success, you know, it, it wasn't as big as some of the other albums, but I re- but I'll say this, being around writing with him, I would go, when are you going to put the makeup on, man? Do get, you know, do that again. Bring it back. Yeah, he's, uh, he, knew, he was already planning it because that was like pretty close to the time when they did it. It was, yep. all, you know, it was in the works, you know. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you, we all we all know you don't plan something like a reunion and makeup and a huge world tour a month before you announce it. It's oh, happening a year or more in yeah. advance. Yeah, because that, you know, you have to coordinate a lot of stuff to do that. And I, and that was a big deal, you know? And, um, you know, I could have kept writing with Gene. I mean, I just, I, I started, you know, they started printing money and handing it to me for advertising. Like I, it was a soul stealer, but you know, I need, I like the money for a while. Yeah, but is it really a soul stealer? Because who isn't in the position like for me okay i sell residential real estate for a living i've got a great business i do very well but there's not a lot of creativity in that so for me the creativity comes with my concert photography isn't this kind of the same thing i mean you're paying your bills you're getting paid well for what you're doing you're creating but then you can still do your thing whether it's fremont street or writing with gene or recording records i mean there's a trade-off i think for anyone that's even reasonably responsible well i'm not i'm only being a broke musician these days when i say broke i'm doing okay you know but it's like i'm not doing ads at all anymore that whole business changed oh that's all done now yeah, because the people use libraries and it's like they were just I could see it happening that way. But I don't I don't really care because it's like, you know, Vegas, all you got to do is want to work and you can work like you could go really? be a bartender and make a ton. I could make advertising money bartending, you know. Really? It, it, yeah. If you get to the right place, you know. Interesting. Uh, okay. Uh, but I mean, I teach guitar and I do sessions and yeah. And, but I, you know, to me, it's like, you know, if I, I can put one man shows together and make good money, not advertising was crazy money. You know, I, I almost feel guilty about that sometimes what they would pay you. You're like, oh, Jesus Christ. The problem with advertising for what I did is most of it was buyout. So there wasn't residuals on. Sure. Music. Yeah. And uh, and if there was, I would have a lot more, you know. Right. Um, but but I was well compensated. You know, I had a, a good friend. 
I had a good friend that kept the door open, but I had to deliver. And I learned a lot about music. Like I learned how to compose and be a writer. And I, you know, what happened at Mattel, just for a minute of that, it's like they would get a contract with like the Green Hornet movie. So I would mimic that soundtrack. Or I remember uh, Kung Fu Panda. I wrote a half dozen spots and I was pulling up samples. And, and Asian-y, you know, totally politically incorrect. turning Japanese. But yeah, but I mean, like just those kind of, and I would go and I was pulling samples and I wrote like Ice Age, I did, I would do full orchestrals with samples, you know, and stuff like that. And, and sometimes pulling live players and strings and stuff like that. So it was a great education. Uh, I just got burned out on it. And, you know, I would play guitar for 15 minutes and program for 12 hours, you know, and, oh. and that, that was the, what I mean by souls. I, I'm. I'm a really good composer. I mean, obviously, I, I, you know, I can do that. I'm good at it. I, I did hundreds of ads, but I'm not John Williams good. I'm not Hans Zimmer good. Like, I'm not at a level where I'm going to go score, you know, Titanic or, or Star Wars. Right. But, but on the guitar, I'm, that's my shot to leave that kind of mark. Like, even now, you know, I'm at a, a pretty high level of players it's more underground i'm not as well known but i i can stand toe to toe with the best of them so i'm like you know what i need to do what i'm good at and right. wherever it takes me and if it takes me to now nah, you're not good any good at that anymore get a job at you know bartending then i will but the door keeps opening you know i i was in nashville a lot of years and that wasn't a very respectful place for somebody like me who's mostly a rock blues guy and i can play country but it wasn't my thing Right. But Nashville's not a very respectful place to musicians anyway. It's kind of like a pit. Uh, Why are so many of them moving there then? I don't know. I okay. Don't, I don't know. I didn't move there to do music. I had a contact. I, I worked in Texas, New York, and L.A. when I lived in Nashville over the Internet. And I rode my Harley a lot. You know, I had a, and I raised my kid. I lived in a, a, cul-de-sac, a cul-de-sac neighborhood, and there were 10 kids within a year of, of more or less of my daughter and all I knew, all every neighbor and our kids could go outside all day and one of the neighbors would have an eye on them. And that's how I grew up because we would leave in the morning and my daughter got, and you know what? It shows now the person she is that she has, she wasn't staring at her freaking phone the whole time. I agree with that. And so that's why I went to Nashville. It had nothing to do with, uh, you know, I want to write country songs. I wrote, to, I had songs on hold for big artists, but it, never went i've written songs with lots of people that have written number ones and stuff like that matter of fact i produced a guy that ended up going to nashville and being one of the biggest writers in nashville he has a label now he had a song called um song oh it was just on nbc it was like the opposite it was it's shane mcanally he's a big writer man and i wrote i got a library with him but none of my songs got cut and they didn't give a shit if I could play guitar. You, a lot of people can. They don't want that. They want the, the hook, this next thing. I come back to Vegas. I because uh, my a good friend of mine was here, and kind of like a, an uncle type. I, he was a like a father figure, and his wife. They were big influences to me and my wife. We moved here. I got cancer. I started getting like kind of known. I got tonsil cancer, and I went through treatment. And then COVID hit. So I really didn't get a chance to do that. So then during COVID, I'm, I'm you know, free and clear of the cancer. 
this guy calls me because I'm doing stuff online. I just do sit and jam. And this guy's like, hey, do you ever get, he's a real smart ass. It's our bass player. He's one of my best friends. He's a genius with this. You ever get out of your bedroom or you just stand? I go, yeah, man, I've been on tours. I was Brian Howe's guitar. Was, you know, I played guitar for Brian Howe for two years. He goes, hey, you ought to come jam with us. And that's the band I'm in. And we're, we're probably the top three bands in Vegas. I mean, this is not a, a band playing in bars. We're, this is a real business, you know? And I'm gonna, I want to ask you about that because one of my dearest friends, Michael, started a band called Hairball. And they're very, very popular in the Midwest. They travel throughout the country and they do some stuff in Vegas. And we have this discussion a lot because he's, he's poured his heart and soul into it just as much as any other musician that's worked very hard. So since you have not only recorded and written original material and now currently you're also playing someone else's material do you believe there's any difference between a musician that plays covers versus a musician that writes original music now and in, in, in no, just just in general because there's still the reason i'm asking this is that i know some musicians who are professional musicians who still feel like anyone that plays someone else's music is somehow lesser than less ah. of a musician yes ha, 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 ha. try it try and sure. emulate in in four hours neil sean eddie van halen stevie ray vaughn all, all all these other guys you know it, it's a challenge if you're if you're really at it yeah uh, well, I because do. I, I look I at, like it comes from a, a position of jealousy you know because like hairball last weekend they were in des moines they sold 5,000 tickets. Exactly. And here's the thing. It's like, I can't get into the details of the kind of gigs that we're looking at. And that's okay. We're talking about being literally jetted around to different locations. Yeah. They've and got a bus and a tour bus in the whole nine yards. You try and you try and go and do that with an original band right now where you can't sell a CD unless you have a show. You know, it's not like it was. It's like, you know, this is a hard time to be an original act. Like, the who's that band that they do all the nasty songs? Oh, They're Steel Panther. Steel Panther? Oh, I'm not worthy. These no, guys. Shit, I love them. They're awesome. They're amazing. They're, yeah. Now, these are top rock and roll guys. They've done stuff. Russ Paris, I shared a, a rehearsal face. He's the guitar player. Satchel. Yeah. Yeah. Satchel. Right? yeah. Dude is great, sweetheart of a guy. There, that is how you do it. This is the entertainment business, and I'm sure people are going, "Well, look at them," and they're, you know, that's original music. But it's like they're kind of joking around. Hey, there's a band on Fremont Street, the top rock band on Fremont Street, Spandex Nation. They throw wigs on, and they and they do '80s hair rock. Yep, and that's what Hairball does. And I've always felt that if it's good and it's entertaining, it's great. That's an amazing name, by the way. I don't know who came up with Hairball for My friend Michael did. Yeah, their first band was called Jet Screamer, which was the character in the Jetsons, the rock star. Anyways, but for me, what these people like when they go to this concert, and Michael even told me this, he's like, well, hey, we're going to play some Judas Priest songs. You don't like Judas Priest? Wait five minutes. Here's Journey. Oh, you don't like Journey? That's us. That's us. And we'll do that in the same song. We'll go from uh, Loverboy to Springsteen in the same song. We have a we have a medley that goes from Duran Duran into uh, Rod Stewart, um, 
you think I'm sexy into I was made for loving you and to kiss into Perfect. round and round by rat. And I did do both solos and everything. We just kill it. And then at the end, we do uh, Spirit of the Rapes. I mean, it goes boom, boom, boom. And it's like, these people are like, wow. And if, yeah, if you don't like it, hang around. We're going to play something else in 90 seconds, you know? Right. I, I think, and what I notice is like, part of being a musician is you want to, I always did music for music. It wasn't about being famous or, or any of that stuff. It was because I loved the guitar. I was in a volatile situation and as a kid. I said that earlier. Yep. You know, when I got the guitar, it was savior to me. I got, it gave me something to focus on. I was 11 years old and it gave me something to focus on. So these people are so happy of what we're doing when we're at the, because we're not, we're playing the I bar at Westgate, but there was 500 people there like in the, the whole area and they're singing journey lyrics all, you know, back, you know, yeah. 200 feet back. Like they're standing everywhere and the bartenders and everybody like, it's like church. Okay. Yep. But I didn't write this stuff, but it doesn't matter, me. but you're making people happy and you're bringing joy. And that's kind of what I'm saying. But also too, I think you probably don't know this. Um, I live in Minneapolis and we have a thing called the Minnesota music disease here. And what the Minnesota music disease essentially is, is if you are not the replacements, soul asylum, suicide commandos, babes in Toyland, or another, you know, handful of bands that are from here, you're shit. So there, these, there's a group of people that shit on everything. So there's some local musicians that I think it's, it's a lot of it is just jealousy at how well hairball does. And I've never understood that because I can appreciate someone's ability to play guitar just as much sometimes if not more when i hear him nail a, a, a neil schoen solo yeah right try and and, and and that's what i said and and the, the guys in uh in uh who is it kk downing uh, judas priest is that yeah. his, you know you go from the like that keeps me on my toes like these are the best part of that whole era and i don't like, look, I'm not a fan of that stuff. I like some of the riffs Lenny Kravitz did and stuff, but I think they it's like country trying to do rock. Right. You know, they were trying, you're trying to emulate the guys that were good. I'll just go and listen to the original. You know, I don't need to listen to you try to do that foreigner riff. I'll just go put on the foreigner riff record and or Journey or ACDC. You know, you're not going to be as good at it as they are. I don't want to hear Jason Aldean go over that when I can listen to, you know, the original singer from ACDC do it, you know? Right. right. Well, it's interesting. I, I appreciate you giving me your take because to me, music is music and it doesn't matter whether it's cover or not, because let's face it, when you look at someone like say Faster Pussycat or LA Guns, whom I like both of those bands, they're playing to 500 to a thousand people at best. Yeah. You know, yeah. I guess I'd rather play to a larger crowd and make money. I don't care if you call it. Well, I mean, and, and it's like, you know, we uh, we have walkthroughs and stuff at Fremont Street. You know, there's just thousands of people there every weekend. Yeah. We're a ton of people inside of the set, and it's like as far as you can see. You know, it's like a it's like a you're you're at the US Festival or something because it's like you're in. I don't know if you ever been on Fremont Street, but oh it's, god, yeah, oh yeah, yep. Main Street stage on, and it's like it's just like crazy. You know, um, so you then know. when you play on Fremont Street, who pays you? Who hires you to play there? Is it a casino? Well, it's a, uh, there's a, a group of casinos 
there okay. that are owned by a certain person, I think, and and that are people, and they hire us. Okay, and so they, so that that group of of uh, casinos look looks for talent like you guys to entertain people on the streets to bring them to the area to get them into the casinos. Yeah, yeah, and it's like because of our library and what we're doing, we're one of the main ones that are up there, and there's a few other, but it's all the same library, you know. Right. Oh yeah. Some people do the drift into the 90s, but it's like we were talking about that. And I said, I was the one who said, you know, there's no choruses. There's right. no there's no choruses, man. You know, there's like, no sing-alongs. We do Bon Jovi. Oh, halfway there. Oh, when you hear that, everybody in bar, like freaking casino. Oh, you know, hundred people, two hundred people doing that at a bar. You're right. not gonna do that during, you know. I mean, look, I loved Alice in Chains, but I can tell you, you know, it, it was darker. It was too far. It was depressing, also. I mean, yeah. I like them. I think they're great, but it, Dirt was depressing. Or Jar of Flies. You know, yeah. People when they go out and they want to drink. They don't want to get more depressed than they already are from the work they were at during the day. They want to go out and have fun with their friends, sing along, dance, and have a good time. And that's what that music is all about. They're uh, right up front every time, and they're singing. Scott, um, we are, believe it or not, at we've two been, hours. We've been at <laughs> two hours. Sorry. Um, so um, let's wrap up. And we can have you back because I'd love yeah, to continue too. a lot of this. But, but why don't you plug your new your new EP, where people can find you, where they can find your music, where can they check you out? Well, the easiest way is scottvanzenofficial.com. S-C-O-T-T-V-A-N-Z-E-N official.com. That's going to be my record. And uh, it's called Trouble. It's an EP. And also, you can find out about my label and the other artists there, Love Conquered Records. Uh, John Hopin is just a godsend of a guy, but he's just trying to let real artists do their thing, you know? So he's putting a lot on the line with this. And, um, but that's where you find the record. And I got a cool vinyl record. I think it's still, still waiting on supply chain stuff. There's some element for vinyl that isn't showing up. But it's super cool, and it uh, I can't wait to see that part because Steve Park, who was Prince's photographer for years, and we became buddies, he did my photos, and I'd never had anybody shoot me this good before. Uh, the other thing is I, you know, I have a guitar school. I teach guitar, and um, uh, and I have a lot of videos and programs at ScottVanZenGuitarSchool.com or SBZGS.com if you don't want to type all that stuff. You can find out about that there. And uh, I got different programs. And I teach guitar, like Skype, you know. Okay, so you do online, personal, private lessons via yeah. Skype. Yeah, people, you know, hey, I want to learn exactly what. And I, I can say this. I don't know how much you guys have heard me play. Uh, I have a record on iTunes called No Words. That's one if you're a guitar fan, you know. I, I you know, I, if you guys give me your email and I'll send it to you. So you I'd can like to hear it. Um, you know, I can teach everything that I do. I, I, I have a, a, a knack for teaching to get to details because that's how I stayed afloat in L.A. These guys were practicing 18, eight, eight, eight hours a day, these students. And they're like, they'd ask me, how are you getting that tone? I go, well, you just been like, no, no. And I, I 
you know, I got into the pressure, uh, how long I was pausing before a vibrato, how I'm stopping notes and keep moving as I, you know, what am I actually doing? I had to really dissect my own plane because the level of students, one of the things that happened during grunge that really pissed me off is they're like practice an hour a day. Like my students were freaking ninjas. They were like Marines. They would work all day construction and still put in six or seven hours after they'd go home muddy and, 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 and you know, man, I learned some of my coolest stuff from students because even though I had my thing, like this guy, I remember one of my students telling me about circle picking one time. He just come in and just, I'm like, what is that? That's like, it scared me. It was fast, you know, but that's what he worked on hours and hours. We're still friends after all these years, you know? So, so that's the, that's the two things. And then if you're in Vegas, we're called blue string theory. We play at Westgate every Friday, Westgate resort every Friday night. Uh, and uh, we were at Fre Fremont Street sporadically and other cas casinos, but you, Westgate's a party. Like if you if you are coming to town, that's where to come and just hang, and you're gonna have a ball. If you where like, where is that located? Is that downtown or is that out on the strip? It, it, it's kind of by the strip. You know, it's closer to the strip. You know, okay. I um uh closer to all that. It's it's right there. You know, but it's like it's easy to get to. The staff is amazing. Um, one of our rules is be nice to the staff where they're nice to us. We love the sound guy. He records every show um, isolated. We're all in-ears. We're even, even using an electronic kit. So it's like we have isolated tracks of everything so I can, you know, go back and mix them and mess around with them. Nice. Um, and, and then Fremont Street, if you want to see like the concert experience, that's like, that's like going to watch a concert, you know, and that's free. Both of these shows are free, so they don't cost anything. And if you need a room, Westgate's a good place to go get a cool room for cheap, you know. They, oh, that's good. They too. don't, they don't, because it's like, you know, you get if you go to win and stuff like that, you know, you know, three hundred dollars for a place that you're gonna you're gonna go in, you're gonna set your shit down and go, let's go play blackjack. Right, <laughs> right. Right. Like, right. Why did I, you know, and um, a lot of times if you mention us at Westgate, they'll give you a discount. But I, I've heard people are getting rooms for just over a hundred bucks there that are nice rooms, you know. Very reasonable. And um, they got some good restaurants in there, food and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, we're not even open all the way, but I think that's coming, you know. And, and it's like, um, yeah, I think it is. I, I really, I think we're ahead of California. You guys are in the Bay Area or where are you at? I'm in the Bay Area. I'm in Minneapolis. Yeah, how's Minneapolis? Is it pretty shut down there still? Or Well, you know, I went to Ghost and Volbeat the other night. And in Minneapolis proper, we had to show our vaccination record. And we had to wear a mask. And then once we got in, <laughs> most people just took their mask off. I would say probably 95% of the people that were in there didn't have them on. So it's like, well, you know you guys are enforcing this or you're not so but then like if you go to a club outside of minneapolis st paul proper then it they don't question yeah. asking. Now, vegas is pretty loose you know and, and it's like if you go to the south they don't, it's like there isn't anything there no nothing in florida i've been down there yeah. so that's like that's the thing i i think you know it'll move on to the next catastrophe at some point but at least let us get back to where you know vegas got hit harder than anybody we're all service Yep. Yeah, shut down 40% unemployment, you know, it's like, geez, I mean, come on, but we're, you know, they're, they're coming back and um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put together a, uh, 
one man get out and just play guitar, long solos and blues and that kind of thing, along with this band. And, you know, doing my record, we got some touring stuff that we're going to try to do, but I'm not, I'm not going to go out and fight the world until it's set up. I, I'd rather just do on, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, absolutely. I yeah. live to fight another day. Yeah. So I'm confident that uh, based on, I've seen it loosen up there. I mean, you go to, you go to uh, Westgate, you know, there's, like every now and then a guy will come by and give you a mask, but nobody's in there. <laughs> if they do, they're, they're down here on their, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> it's like, what's the use? It always tripped me out though. It's like, you're wearing a mask when it first started, but if you're smoking a cigarette, you could, you know, you could blow. Yeah. <laughs> come on, or sitting down and eating. What's well, that's not here, but it's up, it's just, you know. It's just consistency. It's not my, yeah, it's not my, my job is to like, you know, make people happy playing music, you know, so that's what I focus on. And it hasn't affected us too much. That's good. Well, Scott, this has been a real pleasure. I mean, I love, I love getting your insight into songwriting with Gene Simmons and in the studio and, and that whole process, because I think that's the last area of rock and roll that fans don't get a deep dive into what goes on and how did it happen and, you know, who was the person involved and, yeah. you know, what was the ultimate birth of that song? Where did, how did it happen? And, and, you know, that's what I love. I mean, you bring a little bit of the kiss story of revenge and especially carnival souls that we can add into everything else we know. Yeah. And it helps, it helps create that picture. But you guys have been a ball, man. I really enjoyed this. I mean, it's like, I think we started, what time do we start? We started at, uh, we started uh, two hours ago. <laughs> exactly two hours. That's two hours. So, cool. so yeah, I mean, I, like I said, we could yeah. keep talking. We could, we could keep talking. We can definitely have you back on to go deeper into a lot of this. Cause I know I'd, I'd love to do that, but um you know, let let let's wrap this up. Everybody listening, go check out Scott. Go check out his music. You can find it on Spotify and yeah. all those other services. If you're a guitar player, see if Scott's uh, available to do some lessons with Even you. If you're not, man, I start them out brand new. I got a beginning course. I I got I figured I'm gonna get them ready for my stuff. There yeah, you go. Vegas there go see go. him live, and he said earlier, you know, just listen back, and you can stay at his house. Yeah. <laughs> you bring enough cash with you you can stay at my house there you go there you go Excellent. scott scott again this was awesome uh i i so appreciate you taking us into the world of writing with gene simmons oh yeah you guys too man i appreciate it man thank you very much all right no problem thank you that was fascinating uh you know it's so rare that we get to sit down with somebody who can't who first of all has got such great memory we talked yeah. to a lot of people. I mean, no offense to Larry Mazur, but Larry's like, I don't know. I thought the Revenge Tour did phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's coming from a different point of view. He's coming from a different point of view as well. Um, but, you know, Scott bringing us into writing with Gene Simmons, you know, Spit and Carnival of Souls. And listen, as much as I don't like Carnival of Souls, if somebody likes it, God bless you. I'm not telling you you're wrong. It just doesn't work for me. But I think it's fascinating getting a little peek into that world of Kiss from somebody who wrote three songs with them. 
Yeah. Well, and to me, it, uh, it's icing on, on the cake, but I love to talk about music. So I hope all of you guys that are listening enjoy us going beyond just the kiss oh, piece. The, the, Van, the Van Halen deep dive was fascinating. Yeah. I love talking about that kind of stuff because most of, I, I think most of the listeners like a lot of the same music, whether it be Van Halen or Wasp or Motley Crue or whoever you're talking about. And that, that's interesting to me is to hear the inside of their perspective as a musician yep 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 exactly exactly so um homework for this week you know what do you think of the kiss songs that that scott has co-writes on um spit what do you think of the songs on carnival souls and and listen what do you think of carnival souls overall uh, you know don't just give us I love it, but give us a little more as to why you love it. Understanding how does that album, this is what, I'm going to take a Tommy thing here. I want to get into the heads of the fan, KISS fans who love Carnival Souls to understand how does that album rate so highly for you when it's not anything like, at least in my mind, what kiss songs are about it's not rock and roll all night right. it's not shouted out loud it's not i was made for loving you i mean you know it's not strutter you know it's it's not cold gin but yet it has a spot in your in 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 your fandom for kiss how does carnival souls make its in the way in there that's what i want to try and wrap my head around because i can't do that it's it's not working for me yeah, and, and I mean, because you could honestly also say the same thing about the elder. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could say that. Listen, I'll be the first. You could say that about Crazy Nights. You'd say that about Elder. You'd say that about Unmasked, Dynasty. I mean, you almost could get away with saying that about Creatures of the Night, because Creatures of the Night, compared to what came previously, is such a heavy-sounding Kiss record. How does that? How did that fit into everything? And I just felt, for me, the other ones were not Creatures of the Night, The Elder, Crazy Nights, were not such a drastic departure musically. I felt Carnival Souls was such a drastic departure. And it sounds like from Scott, Gene and Paul knew it was, a, was that. And that was exactly on purpose what they were trying to do. Yeah. I think so. Uh, and, and, it, and I think that Carnival of Souls really sticks out for me just because it's such a downer. Yes, that's it. It's just, it's, it's not just a, a it's not a, it's not a fun record. No, no. And I want, you know, I mean, I'm used to Paul being the, I don't know, the rock and roll version of uh, what's his name? Um, Tony. Oh, uh, the, 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 motivational speaker yeah 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 i mean yeah i mean look I you know that as a kid my my way on crazy nights talk about a motivational song yeah be yourself because i don't mean that in all of disrespect i got a lot out of that do do your thing be who you are respect yeah. yourself i love lo lo love life you know yeah. and 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 i'm not saying again that the, the some of the lyrics on carnival souls are really deep and meaningful but they're just not lyrics that are sitting here going, yeah, let's have a party. 
you know, they're they're sort of like, yeah, you know, somebody just died. I'm miserable. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it feels like to me. I'm not saying that's what they are, but that's what that music makes me feel. And and listen, maybe once a year, and I will do it again after we're done here. Once a year, I'll sit down and try and listen to Carnival Souls again and see if I can get myself into a different frame of mind to get it. But so far, I just can't. I just cannot understand it. Right. I'm with you. But anyway, Scott was fascinating. Please go out and support Scott. Yeah. Listen to his music. Go check him out. And if you're in Vegas, go stay at his um, let him know you, you heard him on three sides of the coin. Um, and uh, that's about it. If you are on YouTube, please subscribe. Please follow us on Spotify. Subscribe on iTunes. We're everywhere. You can find podcasts. And that's it. We'll see everybody next week. So you love the show. Go to itunes.threesidesofthecoin.com and leave your review and rating of Three Sides of the Coin. Thanks.